5: Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hey everybody, Robert here. Um, I recorded this with Jason uh, about two days before um, Wizards of the Coast put out an announcement uh, completely backpedaling on everything they had been planning to do to the open gaming license. Um 89% of a survey of 15,000 fans said they were not happy with the uh, Wizards uh deauthorizing um the 1.0 open gaming license and uh I mean what it looks like is a lot of people unregistered from d d Beyond and um a lot of people called in complaining. And the numbers folks at Wizards panicked. Um, and as a result, they are completely folding on the plans to uh, rescind uh, or deauthorize the open gaming license. Um, and in fact have announced that they are making it uh, the exact terms they use are irrevocable. And uh, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. And they, they put everything under an irrevocable creative commons license. So this is all just breaking, um, but I think it's broadly good news. Anytime, a giant company chooses to do something kind of crummy with a piece of what what I would say is actually pretty meaningful intellectual heritage, uh, and then they get slapped down and panic and reverse course. That's a good thing. Um, it it shows a number of things, which one of which probably the most important of which is that the uh, the community of people who recognize the value in these kinds of games in this uh, this pastime, this recreational activity. Um. Also, fundamentally value the essence of like what is open source ideology, which is nice. Like it's nice to know that the open source folks we can still throw a punch every now and again, even if it's just a punch at Wizards of the Coast. So, uh, happy ending, everybody. Happy ending. Also, uh, the good folks at Paizo sold out of eight months' worth of Pathfinder books in like two weeks. So that's nice too. Ah! It Could Happen Here is the podcast that you are listening to right now. I am Robert Evans. This is a show about things falling apart and sometimes putting them back together. And today, we're, we're taking a little bit of a different tact. In recent weeks, you've listened to us cover a wide variety of issues, uh, from conflicts in places like Myanmar to conflicts here at home uh, in the city of Atlanta, um, to deep dives in history and all that, all that good stuff that that you know and love us for. Today, we are talking about a subject that is unusually close to my heart: Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I'm going to guess, just given the nature of our listenership, a decent chunk of you grew up playing D and D, and just because of how really shockingly suddenly it's become much more popular than it than it ever was previously and much more mainstream a lot of you may have encountered it as an adult um there's a lot that's actually been written kind of sociologically on on what dungeons and dragons is and one point that some people will make is that it's it's kind of the first new game that we had that that human beings made up since like chess um by, by which i mean you, you have had war games for a very long period of time, but the, the concept of a role-playing game in the way that, that D&D is, where you're essentially sitting down with a group of people and engaging in an act of collaborative storytelling that's kind of buttressed by a system of rules, that's actually a pretty new idea. Now, now elements of this have existed... F- Forever, um, and in fact, kind of an interesting fact you'll run into is that in the late medieval period, a lot of jousts had role playing elements, including ones where like rulers and and their their court would dress up as the knights of the round table and act in character as those knights. So elements of all of this stuff have existed for a while, but when Dungeons and Dragons kind of came together as a game for the first time, it was um it it, it is kind of worth seeing it as as something really new and valuable in the history of play and the history of human creativity um so as a result of that i i do kind of think I, I personally think there's something a little bit sacred about that that basic idea and one of the things that's really interesting to me about the industry that grew up around dungeons and dragons is that there have always been a lot of people in it who i think feel the same way um and i think one of these people was a guy named ryan dancy and and ryan dancy Um, was vice president in charge of Dungeons & Dragons at Wizards of the Coast for a while. Um, And he helped actually negotiate the sale of the Dungeons & Dragons property to Wizards of the Coast when the company that had been distributing it fell apart. And Dancy was a big part of the institution in the year 2000 of what became known as the Open Gaming License. And basically what this meant is that the 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 set of rules that that dnd worked by and at around 2000 which was i th- i think you you would call it like 3.0 was the, the the system in place basically got elements of the mechanics got effectively open sourced um and so wizards of the coast um, went from what had been the previous move of the people who'd owned DD, which was kind of to oppose people trying to make third party content using the ruled source to embracing it and allowing it to do that freely. Um, And now I'm going to introduce our guest, who is one of the people who... Uh, is kind of the one of the most influential folks in what happened after this, because once the open gaming license came into effect, there's suddenly this galaxy of new games and supplemental materials that people start making, um, which you know Wizards is not profiting from directly, but which the hobby profits from. Um, and one of the people who has who has been most influential in that is our guest today, Jason Bowman. Jason, you are the the game a lead game designer at Piazzo and the creator of Pathfinder, which is the I mean, it's not Dungeons and Dragons, but it it uses as its base that kind of open gaming uh, system, and it's it's what I play when I get a chance to sit down and play a role playing game. So, first off, Jason, thank you for several thousand hours of uh, of my my childhood and early adulthood um, spent playing Pathfinder.
6: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, uh, Paizo kind of spun off from Wizards of the Coast um you know back in the early days of the open game license and we were their uh official publishers of their magazine until that kind of came to an end and then we we started making our own game based off the open game license
5: and did i did i is did i get all that right earlier do you have any kind of clarification you'd I, like to add before we move further into the conflict and there is a conflict we're not just talking about how cool D&D yeah and
6: I think, are <laughs> i think there's a there's an interesting thing to note about games games are kind of weird when it comes to copyright and ownership and mm-hmm. it's kind of why the open game license is so important right so tsr the company that owned dungeons and dragons before wizards of the coast was pretty pretty litigious as you mentioned mm-hmm. um but they ended up getting into kind of a bind because you know the game itself is one that encourages people to make their own content mm-hmm. to kind of homebrew stuff and invent their own stories and what it comes down to is that, you know, ultimately game mechanics can't be copyrighted. They That's yeah. been, been long held that, that th- those sorts of things you cannot copyright. That's why you see so many versions of like Scrabble that aren't Scrabble.
5: Um, yeah, and it's why anyone can make a basketball team or a basketball league and play basketball. You don't have exactly, to get the NBA's approval to play fucking basketball.
6: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the open game license wasn't about giving everyone permission to use rules, which is something they could already kind of do. It was about giving them kind of a safe harbor, uh, a place that everybody involved kind of knew that this was all okay. No one was going to be filing frivolous lawsuits and that you could use kind of direct references without having to be a copyright lawyer or or (laughs) retaining a giant staff. It allowed a lot of very little businesses to kind of spring up making, hey, here's my cool adventure that I ran for my group. You can buy it and play it with your group now. Little things like that. And and I don't
5: think it's for nothing that number 1 a huge thing and this has become as silicon valley has kind of turned more mercenary this has become less of a thing but a massive thing in the early history of silicon valley and the tech industry was the open source movement you know was the idea that a lot of people should be able to collaboratively work and iterate on things without having to worry about who owns the basic idea right you know linux is is a great example of this and the um the ideology behind the open source movement was a, a big influence in the open gaming license i mean dancy Kind of admits that himself. I, there's a quote where he says that like, yeah, I think we need to embrace some of these ideas at the heart of the open source movement because I think it will be a good business decision for Wizards of the Coast. It will, on the whole, even if we're not profiting directly from every sort of like thing that people make off of this, the fact that it's going to cause the, the, the hobby to explode will benefit us. And I think he's been proven right in that because D&D has gone from this thing that like I got bullied for in high school to – there's these massive podcasts. There's been TV shows that are just people playing the game. Like it has reached um, this level. I never really expected it would of like critical and, and mass acceptance, which has been really cool to see. It's been one of the things that I've been happiest about watching
6: occur socially in the last couple of decades. Yeah. You can't disagree that the, the business case wasn't super tight, right? Uh, The way that, the OGL got all of the other game companies, many of which had their own entirely different games. In the early 2000s, they all abandoned them and started making content for D&D. Yeah. Um, And that just kind of carried forward a a large swath of kind of the game industry, which is pretty cottage, right? There's a bunch of small players. There's not a lot of large corporations in here. Um, You know, uh, in fact, Wizards is by far the largest. And so you got a bunch of small game companies that are are seeing this as a great opportunity to kind of play in the big pool. And uh, a lot of them followed suit.
5: So obviously the reason we are here today is that a poll has been cast recently <laughs> over what has up until now been kind of a lovely thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wizards of the Coast got a new CEO pretty recently, right? Um, yes, yeah, C-
6: Cynthia Williams is, is relatively new. Yeah,
5: yeah and, and there is basically... Murmuring coming from the company that's like we don't think D and D is properly capitalized. We we believe that there's a, we are leaving money on the table here, and kind of in the wake of some of that stuff coming out, they announced a series of changes to the Open Gaming License. And if you if you kind of want to take it from here and explain, because I've 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 read and listened to a number of different folks, some saying like well it's not as bad as people are are fearing, and some folks saying like this would effectively kill a huge chunk of the hobby and a bunch of the companies that have grown up in the wake of the open gaming license. And I'm, I'm interested in your take on what, what wizards is doing here and what actually kind of is at risk.
6: So, yeah, I think you, you, you've clued into the start of this, which was in, uh, uh, early December of last year, uh, Hasbro earnings call, uh, Cynthia basically came out and said, D and D was under monetized. And they had been spending the entire previous year really proliferating Magic the Gathering, which is their other giant brand, and kind of really making a lot of money, like talks of like, it is a billion-dollar brand. And um, as a result, you know, there was kind of some murmurings and some rumblings going through December, um, talking about a new version of the OGL. Wizards themselves came out on December 21st, so just a few days before Christmas, and said that a new OGL was coming, and that... It had notes in it about royalty reporting and, um, you know, mentioning that folks won't need to pay until later um, and that, um, you know, really this new license is only going to be to make books and PDFs. So they said this on December 21st. And the royalty part of that is was really quite challenging because it said if you make over $750,000 a year, um, you might have to pay a sizable percentage of your 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 gross profit, like 25%. And that's
5: terrifying. Which when you're talking about a business and and this is not, the gaming industry does not run on huge margins. Um, no, no. <laughs> unless you're like making Warhammer models that you're selling for $120 for a piece of plastic that's tight. Yeah. yeah. The margins yeah. are pretty tight. Um, so saying like past, you know, 750 K your company with however many employees has to give a quarter,
6: like that, that'll sink people. Yeah. I think a lot of companies, the the larger ones couldn't sustain that. Right. I mean, I think saying pay 25% of your gross over 750 K just basically means make sure you only make $749,000 that year. Um, I, I do think that that is, that is a real real dangerous thing to a lot of these businesses. Now, for a lot of the content creators, this is never going to matter. But I do believe that part of this was, you know, seeing gigantic multi-million dollar Kickstarters happening and kind of going, where's our yeah. cut?
5: Yeah, we want a piece of this. Yeah. Um, And the answer to that is that, like, I, you know, and it's problematic just crediting the creation of D&D solely to, to Gary Gygax, but, like, the people who came up with and play tested and made... D and a thing and then the people who iterated and changed and evolved it from you know the original game to d um in the years of thaco to to 3.0 huh. like like morally outside of like what i think is justifiable in, in corporate law and stuff like morally i think it's fucked up to say that like some company forever gets a piece of that when what it is is like human beings coming together to try to figure out a, a the the most efficient way to run an engine for storytelling. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, it's, it's 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 fucked up to me to think about it this way. So they announced this alteration to the open gaming license, and I'm going to guess those were some dark days at uh, at the PSO offices. So, so yeah, uh, <laughs>
6: you know, uh, most of us at Paizo at that point in time were kind of on vacation, and uh, we kind of just filed it away, and we're like, okay, well, it's a draft, and they're just talking, so... Um, you know, we get to back, you know, from our break and it's the beginning of the year, and this is now January 5th is when a bombshell article drops on Gizmodo by,
7: uh, Linda
6: yeah. and they really laid out kind of what was in this proposed license, uh, apparently having had portions of it linked to them. Yeah. And, um, you know, it confirmed a twenty-five percent margin, but maybe only twenty percent for for Kickstarters, which then got confirmed by someone at Kickstarter uh, on Twitter. Um, and it also included a bit in there that there was a clause that said Watsy could Wizards of the Coast could mm-hmm. use any of the content you create under the license for free. Never having to make pay royalties to you, never having to give you any credit, they could just take your work. um and and they they phrased it in such a way that they, it sounded like it was, you know, well, just in case we make something similar, we don't want to get sued. But yeah, and we're talking about
5: just to clarify it for people. We're not talking about like if you introduce mechanics, because again, that that's not what this is covered. We're talking about if you create characters, if yeah. you create or if you build stories, they Things they have are- a right to utilize that story that you've made.
6: Things that are ap- actually copyrightable, right? Stories, yeah. ideas, and expressions are copyrightable. Um, uh, you know, but rules aren't. Yeah, so it, that yeah, that drops on the fifth, and on the ninth, the full draft document leaks, and you've got s- streamers and influencers reading it live on YouTube. Yeah, and this thing just starts to snowball. Um, and from the ninth forward, things start moving very quickly. Um, on the 10th, a number of major kind of third party publishers, these are folks who print with the OGL, um, announced that they were not going to go with that. And one of the largest ones, you know, announced, yeah, I'm not doing that at all. I'm going to create my entire brand new game. I'm leaving all of this behind. Yeah. And the fervor on social media turned into basically a firestorm. Yeah. Um, it, it, and it's really, really a sign of rolling. how, how much
5: more, how, how many people, both love and play versions of this game that there was so much media attention from like major media organs. Like this, this was not just, you know, those of us who are into gaming, um, you know, freaking out over this change that wizards of the coast has made. This was like, I mean, I was seeing it everywhere. Very few things have like broken as as widely in my media ecosystem as, as this.
6: Uh, There was an article, there was a story about it today on NPR. (laughs) Um, So there was another one, there was one other important aspect in the leak, um, that I think is really important. One is that the new OGL could be canceled at any time with 30 days notice. And they were claiming that they were deauthorizing the previous OGL, which up to this point, everyone kind of assumed was irrevocable, right? It had, it has clauses in it that say, if we ever put out a new version of this license, you can ignore it and continue to use this one, right? But it uses this word in there that says you can continue to use any authorized version of the license. Yeah. Never minding that the contract doesn't mention how you might deauthorize a license. Um. So the this draft of the OGL says that they're deauthorizing the previous version, which puts all of the work of the past twenty years into doubt. And at this point in time, the fans are revolting. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I. They're. There are a lot of folks canceling their subscriptions to D&D Beyond, which is kind of their uh, in-house uh, character generation tools that you pay a monthly subscription for. Um, and things really start spinning out of hand to the point where D&D actually has to respond to it and and pull back um, and kind of retreat from this and saying, hey, we're going to answer your questions. What you saw was just a draft, um, you know, and uh, that was never supposed to leak. Um, But it was at this point in time that we actually uh, launched uh, our own license. We had been talking to some of the other publishers, and and by that I mean we, Paizo, uh, to create a brand new safe harbor for folks to publish under. Now, it's 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 not going to be owned by us. It's going to be owned by a law firm that actually drafted the first OGL. But you started to see this giant fork happening um, where a lot of folks are just abandoning ship.
5: And, I mean... What do you think this means? Because obviously Wizards has already announced a a, a new version of the, of the OGL beyond like the one that got leaked and I, I think are kind of in damage control mode. Do you think this is something that like there is any way for them to pull back from? Or do you think that kind of the inherent instability of the OGL now that they're kind of making these claims that, well, we can actually change the deal anytime we want, has that sort of irrevocably altered the ground
6: i i think that they've damaged a lot of people's trust in them right Mm -hmm. uh i think over over the past few weeks especially when they went silent and then frankly the first retraction was really kind of awkward and filled with kind of like well we didn't lose we won this was great now we learned how to make a better license right they're clearly Mm -hmm. stepping back stepping back stepping back And their most recent step back, which just happened, uh, you know, on the 18th, so, you know, a week ago uh, or so, uh, basically said that they were going to release the core of the game to Creative Commons and their new license was going to be irrevocable and last forever. But it still contains a lot of kind of poison pills, things like we are still deauthorizing the first version of the license Mm -hmm. and uh we have this morality clause that says if we find your content offensive we can just kill your license without recourse yeah,
5: which um, is fucked up because i mean I, I don't think i need to explain why that's fucked up um that that puts and that puts a lot of the most creative kind of projects too at risk like uh, i god that's
6: that's ugly i mean i don't think anybody in this industry wants to see any you know deeply offensive problematic content um But there's a lot of stuff that is, frankly, a lot more marginal and and explores, you know, issues of the human condition that folks might want to explore in a game. And who's to say that someone at Wizards might go, well, sorry, that's offensive to me. You don't get to make it. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody wants to invest their creativity and risk their business on what someone they will never have met thinks of their work.
5: Yeah. The problem is not that, like. I want as the most offensive role playing games I can get. The problem is like, well, who determines what offensive is? And it's a a bunch of lawyers and businessmen at Wizards of the Coast. At least that's the worry, right? Like, not necessarily yeah, and, that that's how it would work out, but you
6: you just you get no guarantee. And this stuff this stuff evolves over time, right? You know what what is fine today may be problematic tomorrow. We learn those things, and we evolve yeah. from them, and we change. But I don't think anybody wants to have kind of the this you know axe hanging over our head of like, well, sorry, that's now offensive. So we're going to kill your yeah. entire license.
5: Yeah. So where are we? Where are we now? Like, it looks like Paizo Yaller are, are, moving forward with the ORC along with a number of other people. Can you give me an idea of what that's going to look like? Because one of the things that, that does concern me is, um, and this is a very selfish concern, but like I grew very comfortable with, you know, 3.5, which is essentially the machinery that underpins Pathfinder. And, um, it's one of those things, like if I didn't play again for 20 years, I could probably sit down with the material in my head and run a campaign just because so much of that stuff is burnt into my brain. Are we like, what is the mechanics kind of underlying the ORC and how is it going to be different from what we've, we've gotten used to?
6: So I'll say this, we're, we're in the very early days on this. And what, what's happening right now is we are, you know, in coordination with a number of other publishers working with azora law and they are the the people who wrote the original ogl uh and had you know fully intended for it to be a perpetual license and we're working with them to to create kind of a, a rules neutral license that the entire game industry can use to share work because there's there's like a lot of nuance that was in the ogl that allowed different companies to share creative work together and. A lot of companies used it as kind of a bridging license, even if they weren't using Dungeons and Dragons at all. They would just use the license as a framework to kind of exchange ideas. And that's what we want the Orc to be. The Orc needs to be a license that allows everybody in the game industry to open up their content and share work with each other and iterate and expand and grow. That's our real goal. Um, And ultimately... We are not going to own it. No one's going to own it. We're actually going to try and find a nonprofit to administer the license going forward so that we don't ever have to worry about this again. Nobody wants to go through what we've been going through for the past three weeks. No. So that's kind of that's kind of one half of it. The other half is what happens to Pathfinder. Um, and obviously, you know, when it came to Pathfinder 2nd Edition, we rewrote the game from scratch. And it is now... Fully, our game it's something we own and we control um so we feel pretty confident that we're just going to keep on rolling with uh with pathfinder and ultimately you know we don't actually believe that the previous version of the ogl even can be rescinded um, Yeah. so i guess we'll see how that plays out i can see this having
5: an overall positive outcome just in that if we get this new kind of thing that creators can use um as a as a core point to branch off from when they're when they're making games that's actually under solid legal footing that isn't kind of reliant upon the whims of a publicly traded company then in the long term you know that is in the long term it's 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 better for creators because it's more like the way things were for the first 20 years of the ogl um do you I mean, like, it, what do you see as kind of some pitfalls in sort of trying to trying to make this this happen, trying to move things in this kind of more productive direction?
6: Well, I think you can always, you know, kind of fracture, you know, balkanize the the market to the point yeah. where where everybody has such a small slice of it that, you know, no one can really get the kind of numbers they need to succeed because you're you're right. It is it is a pretty small industry. The margin on, you know, printed media isn't exactly great. But I, I think a lot of these companies do have the numbers to survive. But I, I think that right now, everybody's trying to figure out how to replace parts of what has just been lost. Um, Everybody's trying to kind of go in their different directions right now. And some of that is going to be really good because I think we're going to get a lot of really great games. Um, And I'm excited to see them. Um, yeah. But I do think that, the, I think one of the worries just for the industry is that They kind of all had one flag they were rallying around, and now everyone's running in different directions and hoping that after all of this shakes out, everybody has kind of enough gamers to support a community. I think it's going to work out. I think that there's a number of standouts happening already. Um, You know, MCDM and Kobold are obviously racing to do things. There's a bunch of kind of known players in the industry. Us, Kobold, Chaosium, Green Ronin. All of them are pretty big companies positioned to kind of have good player bases with great games and mechanics underneath them. So I, I think the big loser here is frankly Wizards of the Coast. They, you know, up up until, you know, the end of this year or the, the end of last year, they were undisputedly the largest uh, game company in the entire tabletop role-playing game industry. And that's still true today. But there's a lot of cracks in that armor, and it does make me wonder how it's going to fracture out over time and how many of their fans, many of which never heard of Pathfinder, never heard of, you know, these other game companies, Call of Cthulhu and stuff, are now suddenly exploring these games and, you know, frankly, the wealth of uh, smaller indie and zine games that are out there. There's so much to play right now, and Watsi has just told their fan base, hey, go check it out. It's interesting because it... It kind of speaks to something that I've, I've always
5: loved and and also found kind of sociologically fascinating about tabletop gaming, which is – you just brought up Call of Cthulhu, which is a game that is, I, I don't believe is under the control of the original company that it was made under. People have been playing versions of Call of Cthulhu for a very long time. Dungeons & Dragons has gone through multiple owners. Shadowrun, uh, which I played a lot of as a kid, has gone through multiple owners, and the rule sets change, and the company that is profiting from the official licensed material changes. But no matter what happens, even when those companies go under, the games keep going, and that's there's something I think unique there that is it's not the case. Even like um, you know, there's versions of it that happens in in PC gaming, but there's also this thing that happens that that a lot of gamers I know complain about, which is that like periodically shit'll get removed for whatever reason. A company goes under, a game is not supported, and that game is just gone. That little piece of culture is just gone. And it seems like so far you know, I'm not going to say in every case, because obviously there have been games that have have, you know, people stopped playing and stuff in the tabletop space. But it It's there's this continuity, you know, even in the face of of changings of the guards in terms of like what companies are successful um, of like people keep playing these the same games and iterating them and changing them. And um, I don't know, that's that's always one of the things I found most inspiring about the way tabletop works.
6: Yeah, I, I mean, I do think the legacy of tabletop role playing games is one of cooperation. It was there from the yeah. start. Right? You know, the the moment Gary and is uh, and Dave and folks you know, got together and started turning their, you know, miniatures war game and giving characters to them, and everyone started building a story together, that spark was the start. yeah, and it's carried through in a million different ways and a million different tables. And even if, you know uh, the companies go under or disappear, People with those books are still playing those games. There's yeah. plenty of people still playing AD&D first edition, right? You know, yeah. they never left, and they're fine with that, and and I salute them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think about, and again, this is like
5: one of the reasons this has such a place in my heart. I I started playing AD&D, but you know, it, it was my friends and I would play at uh at Cub Scout campouts, and we didn't have access to dice so we we had the rule books we had like the monsters manual and the players guide and we used those as jumping off points and we would bring like a bunch of nickels and we would we would figure out ways to like okay for this action you got to get 3 heads out of 5 flips or something like that and that's a success in this and like so many people have stories like that have variants of that because it it really is fundamentally what you need for any of these games, which is what makes them so durable, is a, a group of people to want to sit around a table and tell a story together, which is rad.
6: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else like it, right? Uh, there really isn't. And that's why I think you're seeing so much fervor over this, because for a lot of people, this is very deeply personal.
1: Right. Yeah.
6: Gathering together with your friends and telling a story together, that's something you and your friends built. And, yeah. you know, uh, if you happen to find a way to make some money off of it, great. That's that's your creativity coming to life. And frankly, kind of having a big giant corporation come in and say, hey, where's my cut is is not yeah. really very fun.
5: <laughs> no. Uh, and I <laughs> my heart goes out to 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 you and your colleagues over how stressful this last three or four weeks has been. And I I hope that we're past the worst of it. Um, it certainly seems like some what's going to come out of this is going to be pretty exciting so i'm I'm hopeful uh, and it sounds like you're hopeful
6: yeah i think you know over the past couple of weeks there's been a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of emergency yeah. meetings but uh frankly i feel more excited and energized about the future of paizo about the future of gaming than i have in uh quite a long time
5: so buy paizo's games pick up some pathfinder books go to your go to your nearest game store um and and pick one up or two or three
6: um jason anything else you want to plug at the end here uh yeah you can learn more about paizo in our games uh that would be pathfinder and starfinder at Mm -hmm. paizo.com we have a blog there talking about the uh orc and we'll have undoubtedly have more to say about it here in the coming weeks uh as for me you can find me on all the various social media platforms at backslash jason bullman b-u-l-m-a-h-n Thank you, Jason, uh, both for
5: sitting down for this interview and for all of all of the many, many countless hours I have spent playing games that you had a hand in making. Um Thank really you, Robert. We'll you. have
6: to get together and roll some dice together soon.
5: I would love that. All right, everybody. Absolutely. That's a sode. Uh see you tomorrow.
4: it's just
3: being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
4: Hi, and welcome to It Could Happen Here, uh, a podcast which today is only me and my guest Nicole. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about immigration, about immigration policy over the last three or four years, and about some of the strange laws that impact it. Uh, so Nicole is joining me. She works for Al Otro Lado. And Nicole, would you like to introduce yourself and explain a little bit about what you do?
2: Hi, my name is Nicole Elizabeth Ramos and I am the director of Al Otro Lado's Border Rights Project, which is based in Tijuana, Mexico.
4: Great. Okay, so I think perhaps to start off with, you could clue people in on, on a little bit of what you guys do because you do some incredible work and it's very, very valuable um, to border communities. and I think a lot of people, if they don't live in, uh, along the border, might not be familiar with it.
2: Al otro lado, we provide legal orientation to migrants that are considering seeking asylum in the U.S. We started off as a project that focused locally on migrants in Tijuana, And uh, over the years, we have expanded to serve migrants in Mexicali and then remotely in other cities along the U.S.-Mexico border, including Reynosa, Matamoros, Juarez, Piedras Negras, Laredo. Uh, And in this legal orientation, we're providing information about what are the current policies at the moment that will impact their ability to seek asylum in the U.S. or prevent them from doing so. Uh, or how these policies might be impacting their family composition, so policies that are related to detention or family separation. After we provide legal orientation, we are then identifying asylum seekers that fall into several vulnerability categories to provide additional accompaniment through this process because the policies are shifting and changing and becoming more restrictive. Over time, it's very confusing and cumbersome to weed through all of the fuzz and figure out what you need to do in order to seek asylum in the U.S. So that's where we come in and we provide the orientation in multiple languages. Uh, The border is a very diverse place. It is not just Spanish speakers that are coming, but people that speak Haitian Creole, French, Farsi, indigenous languages, Russian, Ukrainian, Turkish. Um, And all of these people need access to information. That's one of the pillars of our program is that migrants have the absolute right to accurate legal information about the process that they will be entering. Among the asylum seekers that we work with, we also identify those that are in need of shelter and make referrals appropriately to shelters for medical care. Uh, In some instances, we assist with obtaining medications or obtaining a needed surgery if the migrant does not have access to those resources, helping them obtain uh, access to HIV medication or hormone treatment. And of those migrants, we are also connecting them with other supportive services from our partners, Um, that have shelters, that have programs where they're giving them basic dispenses of food because they are struggling with food insecurity, trying to create as much of a social safety net as possible because uh, folks are waiting at the border for longer and longer periods of time. The border used to be a place that people passed through. Maybe they were here for a few days before ultimately they were able to present them at a present themselves at a U.S. port of entry um, to a U.S. official and enter the asylum process. However, now we have individuals that have been waiting at the border for years um, Mm -hmm. who may not have work status in Mexico, may not be Spanish speakers, and are really struggling to meet their basic needs. And so we've had to expand our services from not just legal service provider, provider of legal information, but also providing humanitarian aid so that people can be healthy and as well as possible um while they're waiting
4: yeah and it it's incredibly valuable and it's, it's amazing how you guys have like can continue to step up and scale up as the federal government has continued to fail people um and i think if people haven't come to the border they probably won't be aware of like you say that diversity of people um who come to the u.s mexico border like I remember a couple of years ago I was working with an Aromo translator and we were speaking to people who would come from Ethiopia, people who come from Eritrea. Uh, it's a it's a very of course, people coming from Ukraine now. It's a very diverse space. Um which is something that kind of gets collapsed pretty often in, in border uh, reporting, I think. Like all that diversity gets collapsed into like like just people are lumped together as migrants or people seeking asylum. Um and that's a shame because it, it's what makes Part of what makes it so complicated, but also what makes these border places such kind of interesting and special places. And um, I like what you said about all the sort of services that are provided as well. It's incredible to look at how these services are provided by a huge broad network of like volunteers, of nonprofits, of, of NGOs, as well as some government agencies and how people have stepped up consistently, especially in the last, I guess, six, seven years. I don't God, it did seem such a long time. uh It's like since 2016, 2017, how people have stepped up to help each other along the border. So perhaps if we go back, you and I were just talking before we started. If we go back to 2018, which people may or may not remember was the midterm and the middle of Donald Trump's presidency. And a large caravan of people, a group of people, particularly large or remarkable, a group of people uh, arrived at the border and became kind of the center of something of like a, and they they became. I, th- I think their their arrival was used uh, by both political parties as part of their sort of midterm messaging. Um, and I think that was maybe for some people, especially if they if they're younger and had been watching their news, their sort of first introduction to the asylum process. So, can you explain kind of how asylum is supposed to happen, and then maybe we can get into some of the weird and bizarre things that have been happening to it in the past three or four years?
2: Asylum. Is supposed to be a system that's managed first by by government authorities um, under Title Eight, Section Twelve Twenty Five of the United States Code. A U.S. immigration officer at a port of entry um, or at any point in between ports of entry, such as Border Patrol, when they are presented with a person that expresses that they have a fear of return to their home country, that they fear persecution to refer them along the track to be processed as an asylum seeker. Now that can mean that that person is still detained for the entirety of their asylum case and sent to an immigration detention center. That could also mean that that person is given court paperwork to show up in immigration court at a later date to begin the process of explaining their case to the immigration court and getting a final decision. over the years, uh, beginning at the end of the Obama administration, continuing through the Trump administration, and also continuing even now into the Biden administration, we have seen policies issued by CDP which restrict access to the port of entry for asylum seekers. Um, initially, it started out in 2016, where the Obama administration came up with a policy called the metering policy, uh, which was known as the wait list, which required at first only Haitian asylum seekers to put their name on a wait list with Mexican immigration authorities. And then they would be called in groups um, to enter the US. And that was in response to the exodus of immigrants that we saw coming from Haiti and through Brazil in 2016. The metering list was later expanded to apply to all nationalities, including Mexican migrants that were trying to flee their own country, including those that had legitimate claims for protection, uh, being persecuted by members of their own government. Everyone had to still get on this list. That policy was extended in an ideological framework when the Trump administration came up with a program known as Remain in Mexico. And just building upon that idea that it is okay to make asylum seekers wait in territory in which they fear persecution, because a lot of people fear persecution in Mexico. Yeah, Um, And under the Remain in Mexico policy, also known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, they um we always refer to it as the migrant persecution protocols because it feels yeah. more <laughs> than
4: what it's extremely government. orwellian right like people like to use orwellian wrong but that that one uh, that one's pretty 1984.
2: Yeah this program required asylum seekers uh that were entered they were placed into a, a program called MPP they were given uh, court date and paperwork to appear at court in their nearest border city where there was an immigration court uh, at some date in the future. It could be a few weeks. It could be several months. It could be a year. And in between their court hearings, they would be required to remain in Mexico. They could only go to the port of entry on the date of their court. They would be transported to court and then transported back to, to Mexico after their court, leaving Mexico people in Mexico in limbo for years. And then, when the pandemic came, we saw the border close entirely under Title Forty Two. Uh, the Trump administration billed it as necessary to protect the American public uh, from migrants that could be carriers of COVID nineteen. But this is really, you know, no different than other immigration legislation that we've seen throughout history, which tends to paint immigrants as vectors of disease, um, and we need to just keep them out at, at at all costs. And under Title 42, it's just a, a, a wall of policy. People try to present themselves at the port of entry, and they're turned away. People enter the U.S. Uh, at different points that are not ports of entry without inspection um, and get caught, and they're expelled immediately back to Mexico or if it's not a country that Mexico will accept an expulsion, they could be detained in U.S. custody and then expelled back to their country of origin without any opportunity to speak with an asylum officer. Um, right now, we have been dealing with Title 42 in a process where certain number of people are exempted from this blanket denial every day. Uh, And different ports of entry along the border participate. Each port of entry has its own cap, numerical cap. Um, And initially, when this program started in May, the names of people that were being submitted as exemptions, the asylum seekers' names, uh, were submitted by civil society organizations, such as Otro Lado. Al uh, lado, just this year alone, we've submitted around 11,500, I'm sorry, in 2022, 11,500 exemption requests. Um, and that was from individuals from 29 different countries speaking just over 30 different languages. So now, though, the system has recently changed to a smartphone application known as CBP-1, which... Requires migrants to download this application to their smartphone, assuming that they have a smartphone and then complete this lengthy application um, that uh, requires them to upload a photo um, for facial recognition software and wait for an appointment date to be made available. And they have to keep entering the system multiple times and Until an appointment date becomes available, waking up every morning at five thirty for when the new slots are made available at six a m. And the problem among many problems with this application is that it's, right now it's only available in Spanish and English. So if you speak any other language, you are not able to access it. Um and we have to give you an example, um, We have an online survey where people register or try to seek help from us. We have over, since April 21, over 50,000 unique unique responses. Around half of those are from Haitian Creole speakers, cannot access this app to get an appointment. The other issue is, is that the facial recognition software that's integrated into the CBP1 app Uh, You know, there's a lot of studies throughout the years about how this software will lead to false positives or failure to recognize for individuals that have um, Afro-descendant features or individuals that have more indigenous uh, features. And we have seen this firsthand. So many of our Haitian clients are unable to even complete the profile and they are taking photos with cameras that have a decent you know lens capacity and they still can't get past the facial recognition software
4: yeah it's just like a layers on layers of sort of i don't know sometimes it's just them being like ineffective sometimes it just seems cruel let's go back a little bit to title 42 because that word's been thrown around a lot right um title Forty isn't an issue it's not immigration law is it it's it's public health law is that right I guess it's, it's public. It's a public health policy that's part of immigration law.
2: Yes, it's public health policy that's being applied in the immigration context to close the border.
4: Yeah. And then one thing that I think uh, we've seen a lot recently is like uh, one of the worst accounts on Twitter, which is the Border Patrol Union, likes yeah. to. <laughs> they do occasionally like tweet their own losses, which is kind of funny, um, but. They like to to throw out these statistics, right, constantly about encounters at the border. Can you explain how, under Title 42, each encounter might not be a unique individual?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Those individuals are overcounted because people will make multiple attempts to try to enter the US because they're so desperate. It's a dystopian hellscape on this side of the border with people being trafficked kidnapped for extortion, tortured, raped, murdered, sold. Uh, And so if that were any reasonable person, you would try 10, 15 times whatever it took to get across to safety. And the Border Patrol Union is disingenuous because it it knows this. And instead, it pulls out a figure that is much larger than what it represents in, in actual people. And they're disingenuous in how they describe it
4: yeah yeah i think it it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to see through it and of course when we combine this with the 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 wall or the fence or whatever you want to call it it it, people are crossing in more remote and more dangerous areas which makes the crossing more risky right and and results in a higher instance of people dying or hurting themselves trying to cross which as you say it's it's not an unreasonable thing to do when you're faced with these terrible circumstances
2: yeah there's a Beautiful poem called Home by Sire, who's a Somali British poet. And one of the lines is, you don't put your child in a, in a boat unless it's safer than the land. No one would attempt to cross a 30 foot wall or wade the Rio Grande or cross the Arizona desert in the middle of summer unless what was behind them they were so sure was going to kill them. Yeah. And the way that we've structured the wall and raising the the height of the wall to make it harder to cross and to build as much wall at, along the places where it would be a, a little bit easier to cross for people making it. So the only way to cross is through the most dangerous parts. That's an in, that's intentional. Yeah. That is, you know, d- designed for people to die because the government mistakenly believes that. Mm-hmm. If it kills more people, that folks will be deterred. But that's um, not actually what we see on the ground.
4: No, and um, like it's not a vacuum, right? People are coming from bad things, like making just making the border difficult will do nothing more than kill more people, which is what they've succeeded in doing, sadly. And so, and then another thing I wanted to get at is Title Forty Two with this this crazy series of court cases around Title Forty Two, right? So, can you explain, like? Uh, why Title 42 hasn't been repealed when we've done away with almost every other protection for people in kind of an ongoing pandemic?
2: Title 42 <laughs> could be repealed if the government was so not so intent on fighting the repeal of Title 42. The ACLU has been in court for the last few years around Title 42 um, in a case called Weisha Weisha uh, v. Mayorkas, and. The judge in that case issued a decision in December ruling that turning away asylum seekers using Title 42 as a pretext um, to turn asylum seekers away was unlawful. Mm -hmm. However, that decision was stayed. The government requested that the decision be uh, temporarily stayed to give it time to make operational plans. The ACLU did not oppose that stay. And as a result, during that time, a group of conservative states filed intervening litigation um, to make their arguments about how their interests uh, were harmed by the decision. So now that case is uh, before the Supreme Court and they will not hear the case until February. And we could be waiting as long as June for a decision.
4: Yeah, many of those. But lots of those states weren't even along the border, right? They're some of the ones who sued.
2: Yeah, that's um, still a mystery to <laughs> all of us along the border. Yeah. How interior states that sure might be receiving people coming from the border, yeah. but um, don't have that close nexus as in there are a border community and they're being immediately impacted.
4: Yeah, yeah, it was pretty pretty venal stuff.
2: And the the other issue I want to raise for people is the narrative is that we're in a crisis, the border is in a crisis. Uh, There's so many people, we can't possibly help them all. Uh, We closed the border for over two years. So of course, there's going to be more people, um, because we've made it impossible for people to access. However, the Ports of entry have contingency plans for mass migration events. This is something that um, was learned during the context of our litigation um, against CBP around access to the port of entry. And we see that the government is capable of responding rapidly in a, a manner that is consistent with human dignity and how it responded to 30,000 Ukrainians showing up in Tijuana this spring. In some days, CBP accepted as many as a thousand Ukrainians in a given day, whereas on those days they were accepting zero of other nationalities. And they were able to get up to speed so quickly because every port of entry has a contingency plan. We are the United States government. We are arguably one of the most powerful, well-resourced governments on Earth. If you buy the line that this is a crisis and we don't have a contingency plan, then we've got a lot of work to do here. Um, and so it's not it's a it's a manufactured crisis. Uh We have the resources, we have the personnel. CDP has the largest law enforcement budget of all the law enforcement agencies in the federal government, and they have tens of thousands of personnel. It's what we lack is the political will and the emotional capital to do what we've already agreed to under U.S. federal law, as well as the Refugee Convention, which we signed uh, following World War II, which was designed to prevent further genocide, further persecution of large groups of people. Um, but we continue to renege on on, on those uh, obligations to which we agreed to.
4: Yeah, yeah. Like when we talk about genocide and persecution, like I personally know uh, people from Myanmar who are really struggling with the United States asylum system right now. Mm-hmm. and, and it, Yeah, it, it's really deeply um, just infuriating to see them continue to pursue this kind of uh, like waving my hands in the air, I don't know what to do kind of thing. Let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden and his policies, because like they've been lackluster or just completely like it, in some cases, you know, he, he's issued executive orders, which basically have gone unfulfilled, right, um, regarding asylum. And so they made a statement a few weeks ago now when Biden visited the border. Um, can you explain what he said in that statement? And then sort of what the Biden administration hasn't done to clear up the asylum system that it promised it would do?
2: The Biden administration made a lot of promises on the campaign trail, Um, made an effort to put advocates in places, in DHS, other key positions to give the appearance that it was serious about reform and treating immigrants in a way that is... Dignified and humane. Um, But what we've seen is a continuation of Trump policies which restrict access to the border. For example, um, the new asylum ban that they are proposing through regulation where individuals that have transited through another country um, and did not seek asylum in that country, even if that country was not a safe country for them, um, that they would be precluded from applying for asylum. A lot of people are, have been enthusiastic about these new parole programs for specific nationalities, like Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, um, Haitians, Cubans. However, those programs are really just scraps. Um, they have a thirty thousand person cap. Um, the Ukrainian parole program had a hundred thousand person cap, which has already been surpassed. Uh, surpassed. Um, ukrainian sponsors well as the ukrainian asylum seekers that were presenting through that pro program had much less by way of requirements um and so they've made a a separate and not equal program for other nationalities which just happen to be nationalities that aren't white
4: yeah yeah it's hard not to see a kind of uh white people first approach to asylum here uh yeah i i it certainly challenges your ability not to believe it's outright racist. So, I wonder, like, going forward, um, obviously, people listening will probably be sort of upset and concerned at the continuing failures of our government to do anything about it. Can you outline, like, how people can help? I know uh, there's there's lots of people who will do direct mutual aid, right? Like people like Food Not Bombs are, are feeding people in tijuana but how can folks maybe who are at the border and then who aren't near the border how can how can they help
2: well organizations that are at the border including ourselves Mm -hmm. do work with volunteers that are remote um particularly if they have a foreign language skill because we can't serve tens of thousands of people each year with just the staff that we have um and so we have a really robust uh remote volunteer network I would also encourage people, as you pointed out, to look for organizations in their own community that are serving immigrants. It is incredibly humbling to move to another country and realize you don't know how to read the light bill. Um, You don't know how to register your kids for school. Can your kids go to school? Where can I go to the doctor? Uh, What you know? What is an ambulance? What you know? Do I not have to pay for that? All of these things that might. Be different for them, and and a real lack of volunteers to assist people with those daily integration activities um, that are so important to, to figuring out how your new community works. Um, I also encourage people to, when there's an opportunity to have conversations with your elected official, to have those conversations, write emails, go in person if that's an opportunity. Different officials will have open days. For their offices where you might be able to get maybe not face time with that official, but with their point person who is overseeing that issue right now, our elected officials, they don't care about immigration uh, because a lot of their constituents are not making it known to them what it is that they care about and that they're willing to go to drastic measures such as shutting down their office um, if they don't take action on immigration. We're all just thinking about it as, okay, well, this is happening to immigrants. This is not me. I am a citizen. But all of the worst fascist policies are tried out first on groups in in society that have less political power, um, on people that have criminal convictions, on people who have disabilities that make it impossible for them to communicate, um, on immigrants. And so I would really encourage. you're if you're concerned about fascism if you're concerned about how your rights may be trampled in the future that focus on immigrants because they are the testing ground for a lot of of fascist government's worst intentions
4: yeah and we've already seen that right if people aren't familiar it was Bortak, Bortak among others who were out there running around Portland chucking people into unmarked vans it was DHS drones surveilling people in Minneapolis. Um, it was indeed DHS surveilling, uh, I think, people from Malostrado and other organizations in 2018 when uh, lots of us were crossing the border very often uh, to, to help people who were uh, part of um, what was called the migrant caravan then. And so, like this, this is happening to us, right? There's a thing that Crime Think have on some of their posters, which I always like, which is uh, the border doesn't protect you; it controls you. Which I think is is more true than ever now. Like it, it's this sort of, yeah, it's a place where we experiment with these policies, and they seem to they seem to get away with them, right? Like it, it doesn't seem to be something that people care about like they did even two or three years ago under the Trump administration. I wonder, Nicole. Like, how can people? Another thing that I think people lack is like a direct connection to people seeking asylum or or to the situation at the border, right? Like every time something happens. I'm sure you've seen this more often than I have. Um, someone from LA or DC or New York or wherever kind of parachutes into border communities, does a, a, <laughs> I can see that this is the frustration that you share, it does a story which misses masses of context and then buggers off back to the place where they came from. And um, so like, uh, where, where can people find better connections to the situation for people seeking asylum?
2: I really like uh, a blog and it's also um, a podcast every week, Border Chronicles, Todd Miller's Border Chronicles. Mm -hmm. I also would recommend reading all of Todd Miller's books. He uh, is an incredible investigative journalist that does a deep dive on how we got to this militarized state of the border. Um, So I I would recommend starting with Border Patrol Nation and just going straight through there. Um, I also think, uh, Pro Publica also does really great investigative, long dive reporting. The Intercept, I would, I would look at those places.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. If you're in a border community, like it's really not that hard to cross and see what's going on for yourself, and and do a little something to help. You know, make some of your your money that you set aside for helping other people can go a long way, and um, if you, if you choose to use it that way. And Nicole, how can people support your work directly? Like, Is there a website or a Twitter account they can follow to find more about El alado
2: Now We do have our own website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, we regularly post opportunities to volunteer remotely, volunteer in person, um, and campaigns that if people want to donate to. Um, there's that opportunity as well.
4: Great. And is there anything else you want to share about uh, that you feel that our listeners should know maybe if they haven't been following border situation closely
2: the border situation is part of a larger historical context, and uh, briefly, I talked about earlier the u s is a signatory to the refugee convention, which mm-hmm. is an outgrowth of of the horror that the world collectively felt um when we came to grips with what happened during the holocaust, and you know, we collectively said, never again, never again uh part of our part. in in the Holocaust was we rejected the MS St. Louis from the coast of Florida and there was over 900 Jewish refugees that were on that boat no other country accepted them Cuba Canada rejected and ultimately had to go back to Europe and some of those people ultimately died um in the Holocaust and and those deaths are are on our conscience Uh, and any Time that asylum seekers are being turned away along the border when they have the legal right to present themselves under existing US law and international law. It's a, it's a repetition of the MS St. Louis, except it's happening all across the border every single day.
4: Yeah, that's very well put. And it, it is like, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's one person or 100 people, Like, it's a tragedy every time uh, we can't give some. We have plenty of safe places for people to go, but when deciding not to, not to welcome them. And yeah, it's very, very sad. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your afternoon, Nicola. Um, if, yeah, if people want to find you personally, do you have a personal uh, social media?
2: Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, and I'm Luzon La Frontera on, on Twitter.
4: Okay, great. And uh, Al Otro is it just uh, Al Otro on Twitter?
2: Yes. Al okay. otro lado, sometimes we have Alotrolado.org. Lado.org. Okay. On.
4: So that's A L O T R O L A D O if people are uh, need to spell out right. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
7: Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here, once again, hosted by myself, Andrew, uh, from the YouTube channel, Andrewism, as we talk about whatever, and the whatever in question uh, is the second most populous country in the world, and one potential vision for its future, drawn from its anti-colonial past. I'm speaking, of course, about India, a subcontinent from which I draw a good portion of my heritage, and uh, one that boasts over 9,000 years of recorded history and roughly 55,000 years of known human settlement. India is an incredibly diverse country, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, and otherwise. But unfortunately, it has suffered much of the same fate that the rest of the world has, fallen prey to the rapacious appetite of British colonialism. Now, historically, The Indian local economy was dependent upon the most productive and sustainable agriculture and horticulture and of course pottery and furniture making, jewellery. It was very well known for jewellery. In fact, um, Indian jewellery makers uh, ended up starting some very successful jewellery businesses when they um, were freed from indentureship in Trinidad. They also got involved in, in leather work and a lot of other economic activities uh, in India. Um, but the basis of India has traditionally, historically, you know, for thousands of years, been textiles, different types of textiles. Each village had its spinners and carders and dyers and weavers who were of course at the heart of that village's economy. But an interesting outcome of British colonialism in India has been the flooding of India with the machine-made, inexpensive, mass-produced textiles from Lancashire during, you know, Britain's industrial revolution. The local textile artists were very quickly put out of business and village economies suffered very terribly. So, I mean, you know, I think we're familiar with this sort of general story. Smaller uh, cottage industries uh, became overrun by, you know, mass production. And, of course, I don't mean to sound like I'm entirely demonizing mass production. I'm just describing what has happened. Of course... Mass production has had its many benefits in providing access to uh, resources and to products to many different people, but of course it's also had its many drawbacks, including you know the sheer environmental impact, as well as the impact on people, um, you know, as Marx spoke about, of um, their alienation from the process of production as the um, industrial system. Uh, basically separated each step in the process of production to different workers and so no one had a hand in the production of a product from start to finish and of course that that had significant social and I would also assume mental impact on the people with you know that whole era of British economic imperialism happening in India the changes that took place within a generation was so rapid you know your head would spin that devolution of you know, the Indian home economy was really a sight to behold. And another element of British uh, economic imperialism and British imperialism more broadly uh, was the introduction of British education under colonial rule in the 18th century. Um, when Lord Macaulay introduced the Indian Education Act in the British Parliament, um, he said, and I quote, a single shelf of a good European library was with the whole native literature of India. Neither as a language of the law, nor as a language of religion, has the Sanskrit any particular claim to our engagement. We must do our best to form a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals, and in intellect. So the typical uh, racism, typical white man's burden, typical, you know, um, of course this phrase was used in a North American indigenous American context, but uh, I believe the phrase is taking the Indian out to the man.
4: Yeah, kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah.
7: Right. Um, So it's kind of interesting. It's a different type of Indian talking about there, but that sort of idea still applies. And really that sort of sentiment is something that has existed throughout the history of colonialism, something that, you know, is seen in all of Britain's former colonies. Because... Once this aim was put into Parliament and pushed forward, it was pursued with the might of the British Raj. All the traditional schools that took place in different village communities were gradually replaced by colonial schools and universities. Of course, taking advantage of the caste and class system that was in place in India prior to their arrival, the British would have selected wealthier Indians to be sent to public schools such as Eton and Harrow, and universities like Oxford and Cambridge. And those Indians, you know, they learned English poetry, English law, English customs, to neglect of their own culture. You know, it's like, why read the classics of the Vedas when you have Shakespeare and the London Times? And so having been raised in that environment, having grown up, having basically their minds colonized from the crib, uh, they began to see their own cultures as backward, uncivilized, old-fashioned, regressive. And again, something you see all over the world. You saw it in the residential schools, you see it in the uh schools in the Caribbean, you see it in schools in Africa. Basically, everywhere the colonizers went, um, they would take a generation, they would take generations of young people, and they would develop that self-hatred um and that disdain for their own culture by you know positioning um their education, British education, as you know, superior. In fact, during the process of decolonization, quote-unquote, um, of, you know, formal political independence for many of the former colonies of Britain, uh, particularly in the Caribbean, as that's where I'm most familiar, um, a lot of the people who became, you know, the first prime ministers of the country, the one that would establish the trajectory of the country for years or decades to come, um, I'm thinking of people like Bustamante in Jamaica, uh, Eric Williams, Dr. Eric Williams in Trinidad-Spegoo, um, among others, basically all of the first prime ministers, basically every single Caribbean country, they had all been educated um, in English schools, in uh, English universities, in, well, in the prestige schools of their countries. They didn't end up being flown out to Britain itself. And they basically became the rulers, became the leaders um, were handed power over by the British to basically rule in their stead. Of course, with all the talk of, finally, independence, um, people got caught up in that energy of political independence and freedom from the control of the British after uh, all the decades and centuries of struggle. Uh, But unfortunately, it proved, I believe, to be a ruse as very little changed for the average person in the year's post-political independence. Yeah, this is something that Fanon
8: talks about um, in, in the sort of Francophone context of, like, e- even even in countries where you have, like, at, where, you know, like the colonizers are thrown out by actual revolutions, you get this class of, like, like, lawyers and intellectuals who are, like, have been educated, like, in imperialist powers or in sort of their schools who wind up as, like, the first generation of... Of post-independence leaders and those people like you know what whether they want to or not end up sort of like reflecting the sort of values and political positions of like of, of the former colonial powers and there's this whole sort of dynamic that like i i feel like i feel like this is the part of Fanon that people don't read very much but that's about how these leaders sort of like lose touch with it, with the sort of like anti-colonial masses and how they sort of like wind up reincorporating their countries back into sort of colonialism.
7: Yeah, yeah. That's really how you see that neocolonial dynamic developing. Um And it's really, it's hard to tell um, retrospectively whether these leaders thought they were actually, you know, anti-colonial or if they knew that they were, you know, carrying on a particular legacy. But I find that because Trinidad is only, um, only recently celebrated, just last year, 60 years of independence. They're, of course, people who were alive prior to independence. And so you find a lot of the older generation, how they, how some of them speak, particularly the more educated ones, how they carry themselves, how they dress, uh, the attitudes they espouse. is very much like to get any kind of respect uh, in their time, they, you had to behave with me. You had to present yourself with me. You had to present yourself in a as approximate to Britishness as possible. The whole, you know, conversation of respectability, politics and stuff. And so I have some understanding of what they had to go through and where they're coming from when they hold on to these perspectives still, because that's what they grew up in. Um, but it really is a shame that they've been holding back progress for so long now uh, because they still hold on to these deeply conservative, deeply religious, deeply reactionary ideas that were... Uh, just, you know, uh, they're just inculcated with in the education system and in the cultural zeitgeist of their time.
4: I was just, when um, Mia was talking about Fanon, I was thinking as well about like, have you read a book called Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James, Andrew?
7: I haven't because it's about cricket and I'm not too into cricket. (laughs) 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 But um, I know it's an iconic, I know it's an iconic read.
4: I think he yeah, he explains a lot of that very well. Um, I think if people could read it, even if they don't like cricket, I'm not a big cricket person, uh, but uh, it's certainly one of the best sports books I've read, and maybe one of the best books. Uh, and he does a yeah, really good job of explaining Sela, I
7: it. Did it, it. So he put out a lot of bangers in his time.
4: Yeah, he did have some bangers. Highly recommended. Yeah. If you yeah. if you don't want to read about cricket, he
8: also talks about this in Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution. Yeah, yeah but you That's do want very to read good about
4: cricket. That is not about cricket. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of an autobiography, like, seen through the lens of his his cricket, I think. But yeah. It, oh, it that'd
7: works. be cool, because I, I know he spent a lot of time. He grew up, of course, born and raised and stuff in Trinidad. So I'd be interested to see, um, sort of, if he talks about his political development, how that arose in his time in Trinidad.
4: Yeah, I think he does. It's been a while since I've read it, but I think he talks about like how he sort of saw himself constituted as colonial subject, like through his experiences interacting with British people uh, on one of the places where the terrains where he'd encountered them, I guess, was, was playing cricket. because Right.
7: Yes, of course. And, yeah. you know, thankfully, uh, we've come to decimate them at their own game as usual. <laughs> um,
4: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And even like uh, English cricket at some point, like we're getting really into cricket, which I know is a diversion, uh, <laughs> but like they had rules where you could only have a certain number of international players playing for each English County. Uh, it's, it's extreme. Like if you look at how the empire constituted whiteness through sport and like who was allowed to play rugby, which is a touching sport and who was allowed to play cricket, which, which isn't normally a touching sport. Like it did. It, 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 it's racist as fuck. Um,
7: yeah, I mean, of course, yeah. there's, there's a lot of racism <laughs> in sports history.
4: Yeah. Sorry for the cricket diversion. Sorry, please continue.
7: Uh, it's, it's entirely fine. I uh, see it's all Greek to me because I, I don't know what any of those points or numbers or anything means. <laughs> um, there, are too many, there are too many different types of cricket. I mean, I've had people try to explain to me before. It's just not my thing. Um, I know people who play it, though. So, you know, good for them and all. But back to India right? Uh, if there's one particular person in India's history that really represented this type of Western-educated colonized subject trying to be something bigger than that uh, kind of mentality, it was Jawaharlal Nehru who became the first Prime Minister after independence. Nehru, of course, sought to promote the industrialization of India, not via a capitalist route but by more of a centralized planning route which is why, if you look in the India India's constitution, you'll see that it's Refers to itself as a socialist country.
8: Yeah, um, weirdly, weirdly, if I'm remembering yeah. right, Nehru was like a he was like a Fabian socialist or something. Yeah, yeah, his <laughs> like inspiration came. Fabian.
7: His inspiration came yeah. from the intellectuals of the London School of Economics and the Fabian Society. So, yeah, he's quite the character. You see the sort of direction that he end up putting the the country, and I mean, even today, India in many ways continues to be ruled in the English way without English rulers. Um, Just like in the Caribbean, continues to be ruled in the English way without English rulers. In Africa, uh, you know, the various countries have been ruled in their various colonizing powers way rather than in their own way without the colonizers' rulers. Without the colonizing rulers, um, the industrialists, the intellectuals, the entrepreneurs, all of them are working with the government to see the salvation of India taking place in a subordination to the World Bank and the IMF and the GATT. Uh, you know, they see India as part of this global economy meant to submit and to serve to multinational corporations. Um, but of course, the people of India are uh, not too pleased and the people of India are uh, suffering under the brunt of that Um After seeing the failures of, of course, the Congress Party under Nehru and his daughter Indira Gandhi and her son Rajiv Gandhi, um, the poor continues to be poorer than ever. The middle classes uh, are turning towards, I should say, certain directions. Um, And of course, as we've seen in the past few years, the farmers have been agitating Uh, against the various pressures they've been placed under. Things kind of suck. And it was pretty much how uh, Mahatma Gandhi predicted that it would, because unlike Nehru and unlike other uh, Western educated thinkers of his time, um, Gandhi thought differently about what India's potential could be, what it looked like, and that's part of the reason they killed him. And I must preface this discussion of Gandhi's vision of a free India by noting, of course, that Gandhi himself was a very flawed person, um, you know, racist, sexist, um, pretty sure he assaulted somebody. He did some very um,
8: fucked up stuff to his niece. Yeah, yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. 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 I'll just, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But, I mean, that's not something you can put aside, so it's something to be cognizant of. But one of the aspects of um, his time on this planet um, had been his development of a sort of a vision of a free India, not as a nation state, but as a confederation of self-governing, self-reliant, self-employed people living in village communities deriving their right livelihood from the products of their homesteads. It would have been a sort of a bottom-up system where the power to decide what could be imported into or exported from the village where economic and political power all remain in the hands of village assemblies, where people in these village assemblies, in these communities would continue to live in relative harmony with their surroundings, with, um, they would continue to Weave their homespun clothes, eat their homegrown food, use their homemade goods, care for their animals, their forests, and their lands, uh, take care of the fertility of the soil, enjoy the homegrown stories and epics of India, and continue to build their temples and appreciate their various regional distinctive cultures. This was meant to be the system, the practice, the idea the philosophy of swadeshi which is a conjunction of two sanskrit words swa which meaning self or own and desh meaning country swadeshi as an adjective meaning of one's own country according to the principle of swadeshi the idea is that whatever is made or produced in a village must be used first and foremost by the members of that village so, I mean, there could be trading and collaboration between villages and communities, uh, but Gandhi thought it should be minimal, like a sort of an icing on the cake. Um, goods and services to him was something that should have been generated within the community. The things that needed to be used by the community should be created in that community. Another influential, perhaps the most influential aspect of Swadeshi and Swadeshi philosophy. Uh, took place in the early 20th century as a direct fallout to the decision of the British India government to partition Bengal. The use of Swadeshi goods, or the goods that were produced and made in India by India for Indians, and the boycott of foreign-made goods were among the two main objectives of the Swadeshi movement. And so the boycott resolution ended up being passed in Calcutta City Hall in August 7, 1904, Um, boycotting the use of Manchester cloth and sold from Liverpool. In the district of Barcel, the masses adopted the message of boycotts of foreign goods and the value of the British cloth sold there fell very rapidly. Various songs and cultural works ended up being produced in the time um, to sort of bolster the movement. At one point, 150,000 English cloths were burnt as part of the boycott, and the symbol of caddy spinners, the sort of tool that was used to weave cloth, to weave fibers, to create, to create yarn, uh, became a major force in the movement and in the representation of the movement.
4: I think I, I get what you're saying. Like, we can all benefit from a little specialization and and the, the uh, like, improvements that that brings while still sort of... Acknowledging that autonomy is desirable.
7: Yeah, I think there needs to be some some balance between, you know, autonomy and self-reliance and that kind of thing. And also uh collaboration. I think he goes a bit too much in that autonomy direction. But in the context of when these ideas are being developed, it's sort of understandable because um in this time, you know, the self-reliance of the people is being vastly eroded. Uh, people being forced into, you know, cities, they've lost their livelihoods. Um, and they were, there was a sort of a developing reliance in the global economy, uh, where Swadeshi proposes that, you know, India avoids economic dependence on external market forces that create these vulnerabilities in communities that end up, um, you know, really harming the members of that community. is meant to avoid the unhealthy and wasteful, environmentally destructive transportation of goods um, between communities, avoiding the excessive emissions that that would cause um, and promoting, of course, the development of a strong economic base to satisfy the needs of the community, to satisfy the uh, local production consumption. Swadeshi is kind of about both creating a self-reliant India and also creating Self-reliant villages within India, so that each village is a microcosm of the Greater India, uh, a web of sort of a distributed, decentralized web of loosely interconnected communities. In a time where the British were promoting the centralized, industrialized and mechanized modes of production, Gandhi was turning to the principle of decentralized, home-grown and handcrafted modes of production. Uh, rather than mass production, production by the masses. I think there was also a spiritual component to the idea of Swadeshi because at the time Gandhi was not a fan of the idea that people were not using their hands uh, to produce the idea that, you know, everyone should be involved in some kind of um, trade or skill of some kind that utilizes their hands because of you know the whole spiritual component of using the body that you have uh fully. And another aspect of the spirituality of Swadeshi was of course the idea of this locally based community enhancing a community spirit, community relationships, and community well-being. Uh, an economy that actively encourages mutual aid, that encourages the principle of care between families, neighbors, animals, lands, forestry, natural resources for present and future generations. It's a direct confrontation of the driving force between mass production, which Gandhi saw as this cult of the individual, where there must be to- expansion of the economy on a global scale, uh, and expanded consumption and production for the sake of economic growth, out of a desire for the individual's uh, personal whims for the, the desire for you know personal and corporate profit another reason of course that gandhi rallied against uh, this idea of mass production and promoted instead production for the masses by the masses Uh, It's because mass production led people leave in their villages, their land, their crafts and their homesteads to go work in factories where they became cogs in a machine standing in a conveyor belt living in shanty towns and dependent upon the mercy of the bosses. And of course, as those bosses uh, gained access to more efficient technologies because they were constantly in pursuit of greater productivity and thus greater profit, the masters of this economy, you know, they want More efficient machines working faster, and so they want less people working those machines. And so the result was that the people who had to move to these cities to work in these factories were eventually thrown out when they were no longer considered useful, and became and joined the millions of unemployed, you know, uh, rootless, jobless people in uh, Indian society. Swadeshi instead encourages. The idea that the machine should not be something that subordinates the worker, but instead something that is subordinated to the worker, that it doesn't become the master, but instead it is mastered, and allows us to orchestrate our own pace of you know human activity. It's not that Swadeshi is necessarily against automation, against technological uh, development, but it's more so that it aims to circumvent the harms that could be caused by such technology is being out of the control of the people themselves and in the control of the select private few. I think Swadeshi has a sort of an element of glorification of the past. In um, doing my research for this episode, I ended up looking into, um, of course, the writings of proponents of Swadeshi um, and people discussing Gandhi's thoughts on the subject. And I'll just quote one particular passage. Swadeshi is the way to comprehensive peace. Peace with oneself, peace between peoples, and peace with nature. The global economy drives people toward high performance, high achievement, and high ambition for materialistic success. This results in stress, loss of meaning, loss of inner peace, loss of space for personal and family relationships, and loss of spiritual life. Gandhi realized that in the past, life in India was not only prosperous, but also conducive to philosophical and spiritual development. So dashi for Gandhi was a spiritual imperative. I think it's understandable that a decolonial project would attempt to develop uh, a pride in the history of the people who have gone through so much. Um, in, you know, their legacy and their traditions and their ideas. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to um, glorify uh, India's past and pre-colonial past in such a respect. I don't think any uh, people's pre-colonial past should be excessively uh, glorified or... um,
4: Like mythologized, do you mean?
7: Mythologized, yeah. Romanticized. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, because I I feel as though one that clouds our judgments um, and our critical eye for the aspects of you know past societies that do that do need to be challenged, do need to be changed. Um, I think that's part of my issue with Swadeshi is this idea that you know if things just go back to uh, these sorts of uh, villages and village communities that everything else would just be okay. But of course there were other issues that India was dealing with even prior to colonization, you know, in terms of um, sexism, in terms of the control of the caste system and the higher castes. um, And the other aspects of Indian society that of course were made um, more severe by British colonialism. Uh, Colorism, I think, is... One of those issues that, of course, existed prior to colonization, but was made worse by the British and their presence in the subcontinent. But I think striking that balance of uh, cleaning, learning from, respecting that that pre-colonial past, but also in our decolonial projects, not excessively romanticizing the past in an effort to progress towards the future. These days, I believe Swadeshi is most known for its focus on protect, protectionism, uh, its disdain for, you know, foreign import and investment, but it was, of course, a very wide-spanning philosophy. It was a vision um, and a philosophy of life that Gandhi held for his entire life. And so I, it's not something that I was familiar with prior to looking into it and in my continued pursuit of uh your perspectives and explorations of various post projects but and philosophies but it's something that i've appreciated despite my criticisms of some aspects of it that's about all i have for you all today you can find me on youtube at andreism on twitter.com slash underscore saint true and you could support me on patreon.com slash saint true if you're so inclined
4: just
3: be me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
8: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that's being done for the first time and not the second time because we had bike problems. We did uh, not just yeah, record
9: yeah. a very funny intro that is now completely lost Yeah, time. You, you'll, you'll, you'll never hear yeah. it. You'll,
8: you'll, yeah. never, you'll never know what great fun we had. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> it, uh, the joy was in the creation, though, not not in the sharing. So,
8: yeah, process, not an event. Structure, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm I'm Mia. I'm a I'm a doing this episode. Also, Garrison is here. Hello. Hello, hi. and Also, James.
4: Hi. I'm recording, so we're good now.
8: I mean, yeah. It, it, the The good news is stunningly, as 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 much as it seems, we are now more prepared to record this episode than we were last time. So.
4: No, what are we uh, what are we talking what, what about? What are we man? talking
8: about? We 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 are, we are talking about the age of the gender bureaucrat. So as as people are probably aware there is a raft of anti-trans bills sweeping through state legislatures. Um the, the latest of these bills to pass as of time of recording is a bill in Utah which has banned minors from getting gender affirming care like hormone therapy, hormone blockers and any kind of gender affirming surgery for anyone who's not already receiving them.
9: Um, does does the Utah one also ban like therapy like talk therapy
8: no but there so on the one hand it doesn't ban talk therapy on the other hand there's a provision in there that i think might also suggest that people do conversion therapy so that's great um it fucking sucks ass uh yeah kids are going to die because of this bill The the people who are writing and signing these bills know that kids are going to die we know this because utah's governor spencer cox who is the guy who signed the bill vetoed an earlier ban on trans athletes participating in school sports specifically citing the risk of suicide so he knows this is going to kill kids he signs this anyways and we are now living in what i call the age of the gender bureaucrat um we're, we're we're gonna spend we're gonna have another episode later on where we spend a lot of time going through all of the individual bills and the stuff trump's been saying about this because jesus
9: christ pretty 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 grim stuff that they're i mean on on the one hand making making trans people out to be the boogeyman did not work in their favor greatly in the midterms but it seems like they're not trying to they're not trying to change their uh their, their tactics <laughs> no. here they are still going all in based on trump's well, speech yeah. from a few days ago of, of, th- of, of using the using the transgender menace as the as the greatest threat to america and the and the and the nuclear family so we'll I think see how that does... goes for
4: them like electorally but it's
9: pretty bad rhetoric to see flying
4: <laughs> yeah. around Yep. I think the um it, it does really well with the people who, who are loud and like like you, you often see this in like uh, primaries, right? Like people push to the limits of their party because that plays well with the most politicized people. And for sure if you're going to a Trump rally, what like three years after he got kicked out, yeah, you are also a bigot.
8: Yeah. Yeah. But be- before we do that, I, I, I wanna before we actually like really do an episode on this, I, I I wanna take a look at the sort of bureaucratic grounding for this entire thing. And to do that, we need to look at gender bureaucrats and the American gender bureaucracy. So I'm going to cite my sources a bit and say that I stole this from a incredibly unlikely source, which is the Maoist Review of Shrek 2.
9: What? Wait.
8: <laughs> Wait, stop. Wait, stop.
4: Never speak those words so,
8: again. <laughs> this is... The, the Maoist Review <laughs> of Shrek 2 is is, is yeah. one of the three great sort of texts of American Maoism. There's this one, there's Towards a Protracted People's War, the Florida Everglades, and then there's that time the RCP the, the, the got into a fight with the PSL, and they were both trying to grab each other's signs. Amazing. Amazing stuff. But unfortunately... You know, ha- having having come up with the term gender bureaucrat, which is incredibly useful, uh, okay. they're Maoists, so they're constitutionally okay. and politically just in like, unable to understand what a bureaucrat is. So I have now stolen this term and I'm using it for other purposes. Re- reappropriate. No, it's stealing. <laughs> they're Maoists. It's, okay. it's, it's never wrong to steal from Maoists. <laughs> okay. <All right>. Fine. <laughs> so – all right, all get right. To, 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 to getting back sort of to some more serious stuff to, to understand what this is, I, I want to talk about sort of the term assigned gender at birth. Um, this used to be a like it used to be fairly common kind of in 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 circles to like refer to people as like amab or afabs so, like assigned male mm-hmm. at birth or assigned female at birth. and it's a it kind of sucks as a term. It's been replaced by other stuff. but I I, I, th- I think there's something important here which is I want to go back and look at the assigned part. And I want to I want to look at the, specifically the part about the gender being assigned, because I think there's something that gets lost in sort of popular discussions of this, which is that when, when people think about like the term, like the assignment of gender, right, they think about it as something that's created socially, right? They think about it as, you know, people being like pressured to perform one kind of gender or another by the people around them, sort of by their families, by just like people walking down the street. And this is all true. But there's also something else going on here. That's something else going on here is we need to ask ourselves when we talk about someone's gender being assigned, who is it being assigned by? Because this is an actual specific person, right? The person who actually assigns your gender is a doctor or sometimes a nurse or a midwife. And this person is the first gender bureaucrat. They, and they're the first gender bureaucrat because they are the person who sits down and puts down what your gender is on a form. Now... Okay. You, you you may be asking yourself, right, Mia, why should anyone care that your gender
9: is now on a piece of paper? Well, because and also maybe like hmm. they're they're also mainly at least you know, in like a in like a medical scientific sense, it's mainly like, oh, what parts do you have? Um, uh, and then using those parts as as a carryover for gender as that's been yeah. modeled after ever since we stopped dressing boys and girls and dresses and all the same clothing. Yeah. And, and we'll, yeah. we'll we'll get into sort of like how this has sort of
8: changed over time. But OK, to, to understand why this actually matters, I, I think we need to talk about what bureaucracy actually is, because this is a thing that used to be fairly common to talk about on the left and that people have stopped doing over the past maybe like half decade. The anthropologist David Graeber wrote extensively about bureaucracy throughout his career. Probably his most famous book is one of his later works called Bullshit Jobs. But I want to go back to an earlier thing that he wrote called The Utopia of Rules. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to read a little bit of one of the first sections of it. Bureaucratic knowledge is all about schematization. In practice, bureaucratic procedure in, invariably means ignoring all the subtleties of real life existence and reducing everything to preconceived mechanical or statistical formula. Whether it's ma- a matter of forms, rural statistics, or questionnaires, it is always a matter of simplification. Typically, it's not very different from the boss who walks into the kitchen to make an arbitrary snap decision as to what went wrong. In either case, it is a matter of applying very simple pre-existing templates to complex and often ambiguous situations. The result often leaves those forced to deal with bureaucratic administration with the impression that they are dealing with people who have, for some arbitrary reason, decided to put on a set of glasses that only allows them to see 2% of what's in front of them. So you know we we can see some of the 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 core aspects of bureaucracy here, right? Bureaucracy inherently is an act of simplification, um, because because of sort of the tech, like literally the technical systems of what a bureaucracy is, and because of how it how it stores information, how it moves information around, it can only see the world in incredibly sort of simplified terms.
9: Yeah, it has to like abstract these things and then make assumptions based off those abstractions in order to have any yeah. type of functionality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Graeber, Graeber later says that like this, you know, okay,
8: on, on the one hand, like sim- the sort of simplification and model making that goes on in a bureaucracy can be really, really frustrating when you have to interact with it. But on the other hand, you know, so the, the, the reduction of the complex to the simple, it's not just, you know, a, a thing that's inherently evil in its, in and of itself. It's the basis of all thought. Because you know, like we 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 actually can't, and like in and of ourselves, process the world by immediately holding in our minds all of the information yeah. at one time. Right? The way yeah. we understand the world is simplifications yeah. of models.
9: Yeah, we, and, we we it's pattern recognition, recreating recursive thought yeah. loops that give us the very concept of meaning, and like that's how we know what words are. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's and, you what right, Jordan and, Peterson. Um, well, okay. so true. <laughs> we, we you know, know you
8: can, you, you can, you look. You, you it's, it, it's also possible to we'll take a lot of data and make nonsense out of it. Uh, and this is, this is, this is a field called <laughs> economics.
4: <laughs> Marketing, yeah.
8: But yeah, you know, okay. So, it's, it, it, This is also the basis of all social theory, right? Like, all, all, like social theory is about taking a bunch of incredibly complicated, like. And messy relationships, and just statistical stuff, and just the noise of people doing doing things in their everyday lives, and trying to establish sort of like ways of understanding them. And you know, th- this in some sense is a kind of violence, right? It's it's a violence of simplification. But on the other hand, you know, the the, the violence you're doing to reality here bears more resemblance to sort of like Bakunin's creative destruction, right? You're you know you're imposing a kind of violence on reality. You know in in simplifying and destroying a bunch of aspects of it so you can understand just like one part of it at a time but you know this this is a useful thing right it's how we think it like we, we literally couldn't do yeah. anything without yeah. it but as Graeber puts it the problem of the problems arise at the moment that violence is no longer metaphorical here let me turn from imaginary cops to real ones jim cooper a former lapd officer turned sociologist has observed that the overwhelming majority of those who end up getting beaten or otherwise brutalized by police turn out to be innocent of any crime. Cops don't beat up burglars, he writes. The reason, he explained, is simple. The one thing most guaranteed to provoke a violent reaction from police is a challenge to their right to, as he puts it, define the situation. Yep. That is to say...
9: Yeah, that that perfectly describes any any physical yep. interaction with police. Absolutely.
8: This is one of the things I like about Greywood well, because d- I mean, this, is, this is something that I noticed when I was in academia is it is very, very easy to tell who, like, when you're reading a theorist, social theorist talking about stuff, like, who has been tear gassed before and who hasn't?
4: Yeah. It's yeah. like, who, incred- has, like, who has actually dealt with a cop? <laughs> yeah. I'm always reminded when we talk about, like, uh, academics who have a real fucking life of that picture of Edward Said throwing stones at yeah. the <laughs> IDF. <IES. laughs> <laughs> yeah. Single most based academic thing anyone who's done. Yeah. And like, like, like Graeber,
8: Graeber, I think, I, I think has been tear gas on five continents
9: or something
4: no like yet. that.
8: Like he's, he's, him. he's
4: gotten around.
9: He's, he's done a lot of stuff.
8: Yeah. I mean, gonna, it is, it is always yeah.
9: nice whenever the, you can, whenever these types of theorists who like, you know, they often will philosophize about like the nature of power, the nature of the state. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can get a little bit wishy washy. And it's nice when there's people who do that <laughs> yeah. and who also know like the material, the, like the material reality of like power. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and how that transfers on yeah like how 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 like the how like the philosophy of power transfers over to street politics is always uh, uh, (laughs) always an interesting difference to 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 compare compare
4: various theory to in 2020 i was teaching a world history course and obviously it's remote because of the pandemic right um so like We would just log in in the morning, like fully aware that I had seen and been tear gassed with some of my students the night before. (laughs) And then just discussed like how the state has a monopoly on violence. People would be like, yeah, that fucking lines up. Looks like you've got a massive bruise again. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it it was very instructive and everyone should do it in their history classes.
8: Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm I'm gonna keep reading uh, from this quote because there's a couple more things I want I want to get out of this. Cool. So okay, so he you know he's talking about how like you you get a violent reaction from challenging their right to define the situation. That is to say, no, this isn't a possible crime situation. This is a citizen who pays your salary walking his dog situation. So shove off. Let alone <laughs> the invariably disastrous. Wait, why are you handcuffing that guy? He didn't do anything. So it's- true. It's talking back (laughs) above all that inspires beatdowns and means challenging whatever administrative rubric, an orderly, a disorderly crowd, a properly or improperly registered vehicle has been applied by the officer's discretionary judgment. The police truncheon is precisely the point where the state's bureaucratic imperative for imposing simple administrative schema and its monopoly on coercive force come together. It only makes sense then that bureaucratic violence should Consist first and foremost on attacks on those who insist on alternative schemas or interpretations. At the same time, if one accepts John Piaget's famous definition of mature intelligence as the ability to coordinate between multiple perspectives or multiple or possible perspectives, one can see here precisely how bureaucratic power, at the moment it turns to violence, becomes literally a form of infantile stupidity.
9: It, yeah, it, it's, it, it is this weird, like, childlike sense that is a that is an interesting mm-hmm. combination of thoughts
8: that's yeah, a fantastic
4: graeber passage i, it's I just love a, it it's just, I, I, yeah. I
8: like literally mm-hmm. re- reading this book is like one of the things that like really sort of like committed me to anarchism because mm-hmm. it you know like it it it, it it's it's a, it, it's a book that actually takes violence seriously in, in, well, while talking yeah. about bureaucracy, which is something that really doesn't, yeah. I don't know. It, I f- it's a good f- critique, and we kind of have lost it over the years.
9: I've, I feel like we've gotten into arguments about this sort of thing when discussing the usefulness of like a uh, Foucault's um, theories of yeah. power and, and like, and like yeah. how power functions. You've definitely brought up this passage before, talking about how the, the extent of that is always is always measured by where the truncheon is hitting, um, yeah, on like the yeah. actual street level.
8: Yeah, but, you know, OK, Graeber isn't writing about gender here, really. Right. He, he's he's mostly writing about sort of direct police violence. Although, I mean, it, it is worth noting that, like, all of the stuff that he's writing is informed by sort of like like uh, by, by actually specifically by 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 actual critical race theory and by sort of like uh, like feminist standpoints theory stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, OK, if, if, if you if you if you look back at this, right. And you look back at sort of the you know the 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 point at which the state's bureaucratic impedi- uh, imperative for imposing simple administrative schemes and the monopoly on force come together, or specifically the parts that are about right like the 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 way you get a violent reaction is by being something that being something that a bureaucrat thinks you're not, yeah, that it's, is
9: it's, it's challenging their 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 version of reality it's, yeah. it's a challenge it's challenging the validity of their perception of reality yeah, yeah and, and you know and if, if you think about this for about five seconds if you're a trans person that's yeah. not
8: good because yeah. someone a bureaucrat has already assigned you a gender at birth yeah. and if you're not that gender things are going to get really bad really quickly
9: well do you know what bureaucracies are actually worthwhile and things that you should definitely uh, uh-huh. consider greatly is mm-hmm. all of the bureaucracies that support the products and services <laughs> that that fund this podcast well, I hope you enjoy your th- your 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 five new bars of gold. Thank you for supporting the show. Um, <laughs> we are back. Uh, let's talk about gender and the bureaucracy that yeah, seeks to contain it. Violence. Yeah. So, sure. Yeah. You know, if 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 you are, for example, intersex,
8: the point at which the state's bureaucratic imperative for imposing simple administrative schema and its monopoly on coercive force comes together is on the operating table of the hospital where you're born. Um you know, first you, a doctor assigns you a fucking gender, which is never intersex, by the way, the doctor just decides whether you're male or female, and then, you know, puts that gender on your birth certificate. Um, it's technically possible in some places to get it changed to intersex later in life. But when I say it's technically possible, I, 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 there, there might even more people who've done it. The first person who we know ever changed their gender to intersex did it in 2017.
4: Wow. So yeah, I'm, Sure, there were like, the, yeah, the, I mean, pre bureaucracy indigenous societies. I know there oh, are, yes, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. but this absolutely. is, this
8: yeah, this is, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, a, yeah. like,
4: and and this is another, like the, the 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 way that like
8: we treat intersex people also has gotten worse, in, yes, as, yeah, 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 like, yeah, and and we're, we're gonna get into this, but too, but it's like, it's like, you know, this is a very like, it's a very obvious thing where there's clearly more than two genders, and how how a society reacts to that, I think, says. You know, a it's it's an enormous sort of like it's something that enormously impacts intersex people, right? Like, you know, you have like an incredible amount of violence that is inflicted onto them, and then secondly, the 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 way intersex people is dealt with it's something that reveals a lot about how the society is going to look at gender and how society is going to look at the enforcement
9: of gender. I think on the point of how. In, in a lot of ways the treatment of intersex people has gotten has gotten worse in the past like few hundred years I feel like as the bureaucracy grows yeah the yeah, amount of violence that, that mm-hmm. is necessary to yep. maintain it also grows yep. and the the bigger any any small thing threatens the validity of the entire bureaucracy so they have to come down hard on anything that that is that is uh, like deviant from that because they need to maintain the validity of the system that they have built i think that's definitely an aspect yeah and the other thing that's really really bad is that you know we're going to talk about this more a bit
8: later but like the the actual capacity of the bureaucracy to enforce this stuff has increased so dramatically even in the past 50 years it is like like the the U.S. is a a, a if it, to, to someone to someone living in 1890, right? The modern U.S. is an incomprehensibly bureaucratic society. It is like, yeah. like it, 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 it even it, like it, the
9: even like the <laughs> 1960s. yeah, like you know, yeah. like like the yeah. So,
8: like yeah, like even like the, the 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 most sort of like totalitarian Stalinist bureaucrat, like. Looks at the U.S. and is like, "What the fuck, guys? You guys are took, taking bureaucracy too far." Like, Even just like the surveillance capacity is. G-I-A- oh, he definitely would. Mind-like. Like, he would have loved that. Well, to to be to be fair, to be fair, the East Germans did
9: really well with what they had, but
4: <laughs> I think but, it's really. So,
8: you know, also, I think
9: also just in terms of how surveillance impacts the way you're able to do gender when you're yeah. You know, well, and this is yeah, yeah, yeah. The when thing you're getting targeted advertisements for stuff based on your internet searches, they're like That, that that's one side yeah. of it, and there's other sides of it in terms of like you know people p- people seeking to make uh like different gender presentations illegal how the how, how that, t- yep. that type of surveillance will eventually lead into pretty pretty uh draconian well stuff and, if and, these, and i, if and I, I, I think I, I i think in a lot of ways
8: like the violence that is done to intersex kids is sort of it's is one of the sort of origin points of this right um I, I, I do actually want, I want to sort of get into what, what this is a little bit. Um, so since the 1960s, and again, what I'm saying, this, like, this stuff is kind of recent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, d- doctors have started commonly performing non-consensual surgery on intersex kids to force them to conform to a gender. Um, here's from a 2013 report from the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture that's cited by Human Rights Watch. Children who are born with atypical sex characteristics are often subject to irreversible sex assignment, involuntary sterilization, involuntary genital normalization surgery performed without their informed consent or that of the parents in an attempt, quote, in an attempt to fix their sex, leaving them with permanent permanent irreversible infertility and causing severe mental suffering. And this is fucking horrible. It happens it's, all the time and on all of the people who write these fucking laws that are like giving giving someone gender affirming care is like mutilating them specifically carve out sections so that doctors can keep fucking doing this to intersex kids and it's horrible.
4: It's really interesting how like um, so often the sports field is a terrain where this kind of gets hashed out or like this brutality happens for the first time like the sports governing authorities have been fucking brutalizing intersex athletes for 50 years now and every time it's because yeah they'll and they'll they'll put forth an argument and then lose in court most of the time because they'll they'll seek to advance like a very narrow definition of gender based on chromosomality or something or testosterone levels or something and then demonstrably this binary doesn't exist right like and then they'll lose and they'll respond to losing by fucking destroying that person yeah uh, yeah, it's there are plenty of cases people can uh, can find in history of that happening. And yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah.
8: And, and, and I think the more I've been thinking about this, the more I think that the sort of like that a lot of what turfism is, is this kind of like it, it's it's attempting to take the bureaucratic categories as literal truth but that doesn't work it doesn't it doesn't actually work on a sort of either on a scientific level or on a sort of more philosophical level because again what 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 that sort of bureaucratic assignment is is a is a radical simplification of reality that destroys it destroys reality itself in order to create a sort of like an m or an f on a page and when you yeah. when you try to go back into the real world that shit doesn't work it'll it only works when you can enforce it with violence
4: tests do be loving to enforce gender with violence
8: yeah and you know i mean this is this entire thing is sort of this this is the basis of the sort of of the of the american gender bureaucracy right it's inherently violent it's it's not just sort of a procedure for recording what your gender is it is it always sort of has been and is increasingly more so now becoming a system that imposes that imposes a gender on you um you know and th- there, there's also a lot of ways that this bureaucracy gets imposed on you that are you know less extreme You know, if 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 we go back to the question of like, who are you assigned a gender for? Right, you're assigned a gender for the state, and you know almost everything in your life depends on these bureaucratic documents because that's how the state understands you as a person by by these bureaucratic documents, like specifically birth certificates, but also like driver's licenses, social security cards, passports, immigration
9: papers. Yeah, Yeah,
8: I mean, like here, here here's the American Bar Association talking about birth certificates. They are so common that we might even overlook their significance. In the United States, birth certificates serve as a proof of an individual's age, citizenship status, and identity. They are necessary to obtain social security, apply for a passport, enroll in schools, get a driver's license, gain employment, or apply for other benefits. Humanitarian Desmond Tutu described the birth certificate as, quote, "...a small paper, but it actually establishes who you are and gives access to the rights and privileges and the obligations of citizenship." You know, and and I think D- D- Desmond Tutu is being enormously optimistic about sort of what it means to be seen by the state here, because the other thing that it yeah. does is it exposes you to the state's violence in a way mm-hmm. where you know it, it, it now the state like this, this is this is the mechanism through which it now knows who yeah. you are, right?
4: So does not having one <laughs> like yep. uh, yeah yeah when the Southsids try to not have birth certificates for their children, uh, the yeah. state gets gets real well, violent and
8: this and this is the thing one uh, one of the things. Uh, hear about this is that like you know okay it, you used to be able to like get away with not having birth certificates right like a lot of a lot of americans used to not to used to like not but one of one of the things that happens over the course of world war Two is there's this enormous expansion in, in the state's bureaucratic capacity and there's an expansion of the state's bureaucratic capacity because it has to you know it has to go to war but simultaneously this and this is something that didn't have to happen but did is that you get the army and you get employers starting to ask for people's birth certificates but like, people don't have them because like I don't know. I was why, why? the fuck do I need a record no, of me being born? born, born in, yeah. Right? Like this is this this is only a, this is not a thing you need. It's only a thing the state needs.
4: Yeah, it's interesting to look at. Like I was just thinking about how like, this is also where the kind of front line of colonialism happens. Yeah, like the the enforcement of a binary gender on Indigenous people. Like you can look at specific individuals. Um, Osh Tish is one of them. They were a, a Crow person from the Crow Nation who like fought for the United States as a scout. Um, was what's called a bade and then was like in later life kind of forced to conform to a binary gender with which they didn't identify and the w- they hadn't lived that way uh, and, and because they had to having been assigned identity papers to live on a reservation you yeah. have to tick one of the fucking boxes
8: yeah and you know and the thing about those fucking boxes right is you know even like to this day there are a lot of states where you can't change your gender like on on you, you can't change what it says on the fucking card you just can't and you know, if if they've assigned you a gender that's not your gender, then well, tough luck. They have they have a they have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, and you don't. You know, and there's other states where you need a fucking court order saying that you've had surgery in order to get the fucking like you know in in order to change your bureaucratic person. And again, the reason for this is, and I cannot emphasize this enough: fuck you. That is that that is that that is the reason for this. Yeah, um, I I want to I want to go back also to. You know, look, to, to look a bit more about sort of the bureaucratic effects, um, I'm going to read from an IEEE piece about a trans guy in the UK in the 50s. From the start, the sensationalized press coverage of Ferguson's transition focused on some surprisingly quotidian elements. Quote, Change of sex puts him in a different employment category with a raise in salary, reported one newspaper, <laughs> underscoring the fact that being reclassified as male in the eyes of his employer, the British government, tied into a complex network of gendered economic and labor discrimination. In fact, not only did his pay change, but his whole job category changed, even though he was doing exactly the same work under the same conditions. This was because women workers were simply – were not simply paid less but also kept in feminized job grades in the civil service despite the government's claims that service was a meritocracy. A question a question raised in parliament by an NP who had heard about Ferguson demanded to know what form and number of proofs other than a mere announcement by the subject uh, – they misgendered them a couple of times uh, – is required before a, a – a female, quote, like like civil servant, is permitted to obtain a higher salary in a different employment category owing to a change in sex. By gaining a, quote, official change, Jonathan Ferguson suddenly transformed himself uh, – suddenly, suddenly transformed into chief experimental officer with a male breadwinner's salary large enough to support a family rather than a woman's lower wage that was expected to be supplemental to a family's earnings. For obvious reasons, noted the Treasury – we should not have to say anything which would have led to a request for the male pay rate to be applied from his date of entry to the civil service. In other words, the Treasury wanted to ensure Fer- that Ferguson did not try to claim yeah. back wages. Incredible. So, Turf Island always been very normal. Um, and I, there's, I want to read a little bit more of this. Um, conversely, a different civil servant, this time a trans woman, who was working in the Admiralty Department and transitioning around the same time, was advised it was in her quote interest to delay official recognition of the change until at least January 1960, assuming full equal pay in the civil service is introduced by 1961. Her employers wrote that it was in her quote own interest, in their opinion, to <sighs> continue wearing men's clothing for the time being in order to mm. avoid a significant reduction in pay.
4: That is, it's funny because like I well, it's not funny. It's fucked up and it's stupid, isn't it? But uh, like I knew trans people in Britain who would have grown up. Around this time who like socially transitioned after retirement yeah uh, or at least like openly to you know we, we weren't like bffs or anything but it it's absolutely fucking insane that like that this argument was deployed
8: yeah and you know and you can you can see what's sort of going on here which is that like
4: you know it,
8: it it's more it's more explicitly obvious in here than it is in a lot of other cases but your status in the gender bureaucracy is a key element of how you're able to extract resources from the state. And, you know, sometimes that's literally just an explicit pay gap, like it was based <laughs> on institutional sexism. But, you know, I, 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 I think I think the second case is in a lot of ways more revealing. Right. The, the, the state and its gender bureaucracy is very explicitly saying conform to what the, ge- the bureaucracy says your gender is and you'll you'll get paid more. And if you don't, you'll get paid less. And if you look at this more abstractly, right, in in order to interface with the state, in order to extract welfare benefits, in order to pay your fucking taxes, in order to drive, in order to buy alcohol, apparently now in order to buy uh, uh, the stupid cleaning bottles of of compressed air that you have to use to to clean out your computer keyboards, uh, in order to buy alcohol, in order to get on an airplane, you have to conform to the state's bureaucratic view of you. And if you don't, you can't do it. And, and, you know, th- this this brings up the question, what right does the state have to assign my gender? And, you know, the state will spit out a variety of sort of like pseudo medical and pseudo political explanations. But the answer is that the state has no right to tell you what your gender is except force. And, you know, it, the, the, the extent to which the state has actually been able to sort of do this kind of stuff has changed over time. We, we, we've talked about this a bit, but what, like you know, over the course of sort of, uh, over the course of sort of the the, the twenty of the twentieth century, and you know, we can also look at things like, uh, we can look at the war on terror. We can look at neoliberalism and David Graeber's Iron Law of Liberalism. Uh-huh. Which is the iron law of liberalism states that any market reform, any government initiative intended to reduce red tape and promote market forces, will have the ultimate effect of increasing the total number of regulations, the total amount of paperwork, and the total number of bureaucrats the government employs. <laughs> which I always love, but you know, like we, we, we've we've seen the sort of consequences of this playing out over over the course of of you know the the, the last about a century, right? If, if you go back to the 1890s, it was possible for basically private citizens to have just full on wars with each other in parts of the U S and the, the government would just be like, sure. Okay. Whatever. Like the, 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 the people mining bird shit off of the coast of California <laughs> are shooting each other with cannons again, like okay. whatever. <laughs> right. Like it, it, it's, it's not really until the 20th century and really even in like the last 50, 60, 70 years has been yeah. a massive expansion of this, that like the state actually has full territorial control over everywhere that it claims to have control of, right? We, we're like, we, we are just now getting to a place where the police can actually, you know, like have like militarily hold the entire country at one time. And even then, they can only do it as long as people sort of cooperate with them. Um, but, you know, this... This is really bad if you are a person who, do, who 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 the bureaucracy has deemed to be something else or and, and this is another, you know, another sort of angle on this. Right. Like if you're someone who does not have documentation, the state very, very quickly will just attempt to destroy you because, you know, oh, hey, you don't you don't have the right papers. This means the government can fucking arrest you and kick you out of the country. Yeah. And, you know, this is fucking horrible. Um, I, th- 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 There's a lot of stuff. Like, there's a lot of other angles you can look at this from, right? I mean, like, at some point, we probably will do an episode about, like, the process of getting medical care and all of the people who you have to convince that you are your gender. But, you know, that, that's another episode entirely. What, what I want to get at here is that state bureaucratic power is being used in, in by, by just increasingly politicized gender bureaucrats, not only to force people to comply with their sort of state mandated gender when they deal with the state, but also to force them to inhabit that gender in their private lives which is constitutes nothing less than a form of full-scale gender totalitarianism. Um, we, we talked about that fucking Utah bill, which, you know, again, pro- prohibits minors from getting gender-affirming surgery, puberty blockers, or hormone treatment. That, that is a bill that forces people to live in their state-mandated gender. In Florida, gender bureaucrats are allowed to physically inspect athletes they suspect of uh, being trans, which is to say not conforming to fucking right. state bureaucratic gender controls.
4: It's children, right? Like, it, yeah, fucking it's, it's, yeah. children.
8: Like, they, they they are allowed to molest your child, uh, because they think
9: that because they're yeah. they think they're trans. The other aspect of this is obviously there. This is something we've talked about before. It's something that you're starting to see with these bills is they're trying to make the bills uh uh age number go as high as possible. Yes, yep. so yep. there's, there's bills proposing 25 now, uh, t- 21. There's bills proposing t- 25. Not not right. So it's trying to. Pol- trying to police and control the 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 bodily autonomy of of complete adults which obviously is not yep. not yeah, a yeah. new thing uh for the GOP specifically especially in the wake of uh the Roe v Wade overturning um but, but just also a- another aspect of like this 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 goes beyond just people who are younger than the age of 19 yep this this this, this they're going to try to keep raising this as much as as much as possible and this is where the types of surveillance that i was talking about before is gonna become a problem because if you're if you're googling how to do diy hrt and get stuff shipped in from brazil uh don't think that the surveillance stuff's not gonna not gonna yeah. uh, impact your ability to do that
4: they also polices like the gender presentation of cis people specifically cis sure. women i think like the, the people who are getting physically inspected because of these laws are just girls who are good at fucking sport I, like there's cis girls that just they might be like like taller or, or stronger or, or and like it's Some anyone has the power to just be like, oh, you're not you're not a girly enough girl. Uh So fucking now you get to go to the pervert room and get inspected. Well, and you know
8: we we see this in, like in Texas, right? The law right now is that if the st- if the state thinks your fucking child is not sufficiently close to their gender, they can fucking take your child from you and force them to to be whatever fucking gender the state yeah. wants them to be, right? And, you know, any other period in history, if you walk into a room and tell a bunch of people the state is going to decide your fucking gender, everyone would lose their goddamn minds. This would be like, this this is a, this is a, a, like, unfathomable, like, even in sort of like the depths of the sort of totalitarian, like, nightmare states. This is like an unfathomable level of sort of state bureaucratic, like, imposition onto people's lives. And yet, you know, it's the fucking U.S., right? We, have, we, have the, we are the most bureaucratic society humanity has ever produced. Nobody thinks it's the most bureaucratic society has ever produced. And, you know, we are right now every day seeing the point at which bureaucracy meets violence. The, the last thing I have to say is that, you know, like this, this, this is the future of gender. The future of gender is government bureaucrats, whether they're cops, politicians, doctors, child protective services, or school board administrators forcing you to be a gender that they're not. But fundamentally, they have no fucking right to do this, right? What they have is power, and their grasp on power is still right now tenuous. So you know, it, it it is possible to stop them from going any further than this. It is possible to beat back the power of the state, and it is possible to have a world that's not this. And we know it's possible to have a world that's not this because it wasn't fucking like this like fifty years ago. So yeah, fuck them. And that's that's that's, that's <laughs> that that that's that, that, that's gender <laughs> bureaucrats.
4: People should read David Graeber uh, and learn about intersectionality <sighs> for a fucking second.
9: Another, an, another, another great resource to learn about how you can like m- uh, mix up gender stuff. There's this new video game out right now which has a pretty intense character creation selection oh, where you can. God. You can <laughs> it's <laughs> called. Let me see. It's called. It's called Ho- Hogwarts L- Legacy is that? Oh no, no! I thought you were
4: going with Cyberpunk. What's it oh no! Uh, no, but it has it
9: has <laughs> it has a lot of different customizations <laughs> that you can do. But your gender presentation and 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 your body parts. You know, so that's okay, pretty okay. Cool. I've I've
8: i um, i been refusing to do okay. this on Twitter, but I I need I need I need to take fucking one minute talk about the dumbest argument anyone has ever made, which is that <laughs> I have to buy this game in order to support the developers. Which think about this in five seconds, right? Okay, if you have to what? buy this game to support the developers, don't you have what? to buy every other game? <laughs> To support their developers. In fact, uh-huh. are are you not morally obligated to buy every single product on Earth? Because if you don't buy every <laughs> single product that's ever been made, you the, the, the those th- the people who made weird, those products like, will not be deployed. Yeah. It's this bullshit. Is, this, oh. this, is Fuck off. Weird,
9: this is such a weird like <laughs> capitalism poisoned moment here. <sighs> Of yeah, thinking who you're obligated that? to consume. Lots things. of people on. I, yeah. I I I have
8: been uh-huh. holding my tongue on Twitter about this for no, months oh, now. Fuck them. Watching people watching people make the argument. Yeah. I have to buy something to support the developers. Which again, buy a different game. Support yeah. those developers. Yeah. I buy fucking go go on strike. Okay, fucking I, think, I don't know if you I want think, if you I want if you want to support
9: the developers.
4: Give like, your okay, money like to like, s- someone who isn't a fucking video
9: game developer. Well. <laughs> I'm glad that we could. Things. I'm glad, glad. we could have that that special bonding moment over the very inclusive gender settings inside this new hit video game. So that's that's God. pretty cool. Hopefully we get an ad from them soon. But, I hope
8: so. I hope so. Yeah. The worst Twitter day of my life is the day we get that fucking ad. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Gold presented by Hogwarts. Hi everyone, it's It Could Happen here and it's just James today because today I'm doing a little interview on the situation for Rohingya people. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Rohingya genocide we're not going to cover that in depth but we will give a little bit of an overview uh, and I'm talking to Onkyo Mo who is Rohingya himself and who works with the national unity government and advising them about Rohingya people's human rights. I think the news cycle hasn't really covered many Rohingya issues uh, since the Rohingya genocide. The world's kind of moved on from caring about them but they're still in a very difficult situation and we want to update you on issues that continue to face the Rohingya people. I hope you enjoy the interview. So today I'm joined by Ong Mo who's an advisor to the National Unity Government of Myanmar which people will hopefully be familiar with. If not he can explain a little bit of what that is. He's an advisor to the Ministry of Human Rights, and also a Rohingya human rights activist himself. And so, Pai, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what I'd love to do today is, I think, if our listeners have listened to our previous coverage of what's happening in Myanmar or Burma, depending on which one you prefer, they will know a lot about the coup and they will know a lot. About the, the things that have happened since the coup, right? The PDFs and the uh, ethnic resistance organizations. But I think they might not be as familiar with the situation uh, that, that Rohingya people have been in for a long time and continue to be in. It's a different part of the of the country to the, we were we were in um, Mesot, which is on the other side. So um, that's something we've covered a lot less. So perhaps you could begin by explaining uh like why. There are so many Rohingya refugees who have left. Obviously, the, the history of, of the persecution of Rohingya people is very long. But if you could give us sort of a, a potted history of, of the persecution of Rohingya people by various governments in Myanmar and, and what has led to this massive exodus and, and this, this big refugee population of Rohingya people now, that would be great to start with.
10: Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, in, uh, the history is very long, but I. Uh, I will be concrete and, uh, and, and short. Uh, the Rohingya people uh, has been in Myanmar uh, before Burma even exists, uh, before Burma become Burma and before yeah. British came and their significant uh, architect related uh, uh, infrastructure that exists, indicates the existence of the Rohingya. And there's a lot of literature, research and Rohingya people themselves living in generations and generations um, there it indicates that Rohingya are part of Myanmar and and it uh, used to be and it will be and uh, Rohingya are not only the ethnic minority they are also the religious minority majority of Burmese people are Buddhist and of course the second largest uh, followed by the Muslims are Christian and then the third largest are Muslim and Rohingya are Muslim and uh and rohingya are single muslim uh, ethnic groups and sing also religious ethnic groups and uh, there has been historical uh exclusion discriminations uh sponsored by the uh, and sponsored and carried out by the uh, consecutive government of Myanmar to target this religious and ethnic minority to exclude from religious ethnic and social aspects of the society and uh, and it has been politically motivating for many government it has always been beneficial in in convincing the larger populations of Myanmar by showing rohingya as a threat uh, to the country despite uh, because of their uh, religious differences and uh, the the way that um, we wear and we eat are slightly different than than sure. burmese uh, uh, because we have our own culture and own traditions and own language and and uh, uh, and it's enriched by by those uh, Thus, uh, the uh, the first uh, start of uh, execution, like executing these discriminatory policies toward the Rohingya, has started as uh, as long as um, as far as back in 1960, where the first coup took place. 1962, when first coup took place, and then military uh, consecutive military government accelerated that to form to uh, a situations where it can be uh, uh, defined uh, and. fall under the category of the crimes against humanity. Uh, so in 1978, there is a big operation uh, against Rohingya people uh, to deport them. And uh, 200,000 people has to be flee to, uh, to Bangladesh. And uh, some of them still remain as refugees to third generation, fourth generations in Bangladesh, not being able to repatriate it to the place where they uh, they come from. And followed by that, Ah, uh, the 1992. Uh, um, there was another influx of the refugees, and uh, the refugee. Uh, it's also the uh, quite significant, larger number of the refugees, and and uh, and not everyone could come back. And there is another uh, layer of the refugees that uh, remains uh, uh, from the repatriating. Then, from the the violation, the human rights violations became to the Rohingya as business as usual. Uh, uh, limiting the child uh, the number of child that you can have uh, and uh, uh, treating you less than animals not having the religious right to exercise the way that you believe and restrictions of movement uh, killing raping and uh, it's continued and it has been accelerated uh, in different form and shape where it could be uh, it could come to a situation it's uh, from from uh, crimes against humanity, it's being transformed to genocides, mm-hmm. and and uh, in 2017, it's one to the highest peak of the genocides, where a million people are being deported uh, by burning, and many uh, a thousand people died, and many thousand women being raped, and there are a lot of uh, fatherless uh, child in the camp today, uh, being uh, 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 being born by 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 the women who victims of the of the rape of the Myanmar military. And today there is a million people in Bangladesh, and uh, uh, with no hope to be repatriated uh, soon to the place of origin with safety and and dignity, and and of course the political landscape in Myanmar has shifted. Uh, it used to be in the democratic um, transition from two thousand ten to twenty twenty with two consecutive different government and and. Uh, the democratically elected government has been overthrown by uh, by a temp coup by the military, who had ruled the country for 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 many decades, uh, and uh, and and of course the, the the democratically elected government, which I advise to, uh, is is being uh, some of the members of the government are being arrested, and some are in the in the ethnic uh, territorial control, and and some are in exile, and 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 uh, so the country. So the, the the reactions of the fifty million people uh, has been different because there has been several coup in Myanmar and this was the 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 political calculations of the military leaders to attempt the coup uh, was wrong that they did not expect the resistance of the peoples and then of course the uh, the the young uh, generation Z people came in uh, to to resist initially they claimed to be uh, peacefully protesting to hand over the power back to the. Uh, to the to the democratically elected people, but as a result, they were being brutally cracked on and and killed, arrested, and then and, uh, and then young people started to understand that we need to speak the language that they under, they understand. So they speak that language is grabbing a gun and 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 and, uh, and forming the military. So followed by that, national unity government has been formed by uh, with uh, uh, elected members of the of the of the parliament, uh, both lower horn and upper house. Uh, so the national unity government today is the most uh, the legitimate government of Myanmar and having also some territorial control. Of course, the majority of the government invest- infrastructure are being uh, being captured uh, illegally by the military. junta.
4: Yeah. That's, and it's interesting that people aren't familiar with the sort of ethnic makeup of previous governments and then the national unity government. From what I understand, it's not as much dom- dominated by the majority ethnic. Burman people in, in the national unity government as it was before, um, even under the NLD, right, even under sort of the most, uh, most democratic that it that has been uh, in, in Myanmar for some time, like there was still a domination by, by one ethnicity, right, that the national unity government is more ethnically diverse. Is that right?
10: Correct. Uh, but still, there is, are a lot of rooms for improvement, particularly uh, Rohingya people has always been part of Myanmar and politically mm-hmm. excluded. And despite yeah. a million people being pushed out to the Bangladesh through a genocidal attempt, the remaining populations in Myanmar is 600,000 people, politically representable size of populations, under continued genocidal attempts of the Myanmar military. And the national United Government did not include politically meaningfully the Rohingya populations till now. And they appointed me as an advisor, but a politically representable size of populations need to be represented not by functions uh, alone; it's need to be fun- both all represented by functions and number uh, equally to to uh, to other ethnic. And we are in the context of popu- uh, identity uh, politics in Myanmar, and your political rights and and responsibilities to what to the nations are associated that the very identity that you were. Uh, so time to time, there is a big questions like you know we are moving forward to the path of democracy to make the country to to back to the track of democracy but the, the the very principle of democracy is majority rules and, and respect the minorities right right and still yeah. the, the the rohingya are being uh in, despite the international uh pressure particularly the united states and its allies to have inclusive democracy and uh rohingya people are not yet meaningfully included in the government
4: yeah and i think that's something we've spoken about a lot uh with with uh, karen and, and kareni people who we've spoken to um about sort of the need for a more inclusive. Structure, whether that's like a federal democracy after, obviously after the the military hunter has been deposed, or, or certainly something that's more inclusive, and perhaps we can talk about how like I, it's very interesting to me when I talk to young people, Generation uh, Z people from Myanmar, they will say that like they wouldn't have even said sometimes Rohingya like ten years ago that they wouldn't have used a term they'd have they'd have seen the people who we now who we would call Rohingya, as Bangladeshis, right? Because this was the the narrative. Can you explain how, you've explained very well that that's not true, uh, but how that narrative was constructed and what it was used to do?
10: I think it's, once again, uh, to exclude Rohingya and to carry out systematic uh, destructions, mentally and physically uh, on the Rohingya is also a lot to do with the spreading propaganda, misinformation and and disinformations. through state-led media, uh, both yes. online and offline, uh, and uh, so this, this means these distractions has happened with the state-sponsored and state-preplanned, intentional, um, intentional, uh, intentional uh, uh, way of doing it. And thus, the the society, the Rohingya people, has been restricted from moving. And this uh, one of the least developed uh, region where the Rohingya people live, and a lot of people from uh, from like other uh, state. Uh, wouldn't be able to travel and go and see what is happening really inside there, and Rohingya people would not be able to move out of that to tell their stories. So all the narrative that people hear is the military and the government, what the government used to put at that moment. So in the in the uh, in the eyes or in the perceptions of the people, the Rohingyas are from Bangladesh, and uh, they are trying to, uh, to take over the country, and they are a national security threat, and that was the narrative. So the the, the reality. Uh, is being defined by the perceptions and fo- false and misinformations that being given uh, in a consistent, intentional uh, way to the young people. And of course, today, I uh, think, has changed slightly uh, to be seeing to uh, uh, what is reality and uh, and people showing the sympathy to what happened to the Rohingya because it's every time uh, something happened in Myanmar like that, it's consistent to what to the Rohingya, the, the human rights violations, crimes against humanity and genocide. And the people, 50 million people in Myanmar were not, either they are seeing neutral or they are standing with the military, not like to that they should do this and this right to do, to kill people, right to rape because they are national security threat. But uh, uh, what had happened to the Rohingya people, perhaps in the not uh, the same shape and same uh, uh, or or velocity or momentum or, or intensity uh, started to happen after the coup to to the to the Bama people, and then they tend to realize, oh, what happened to the Rohingya? What Rohingya used to tell burning the whole villages, killing and raping is exactly what what, what is happening, uh, more or less exactly what is happening to us, then they 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 were right. And it's uh, the victims change and the proper treaties remain the same. And th- with that concept, people come to, but again, I think the still, it's very small number of the populations uh, uh, compared to the whole populations that uh, lives in Myanmar. And in, in, in the democratic principles, there is no, like you don't tend to say something just because that you sympathize and there, there are principles and values that you do not compromise in any circumstance. So equal right, justice and uh, and inclusivity and in, like like uh, celebrating of the, the diversity. Uh, these things are very core principles of, of, of the democracy that, that we are like as a Burmese people asking from international community to help what we are preaching for towards the democracy need to be demonstrated at home first we need to act upon and and uh, uh, so i think the, the the benchmark there is no the benchmark shouldn't be defined to include or exclude someone based on the sympathies need to be based on the principles and values
4: can you explain a little bit about the situation that rohingya people who have left myanmar maybe they're in cox's bazaar maybe they're in no man's land maybe they're they're now being moved to an island, right? Can can you explain what life is like for those people?
10: Of course, the when Rohingya people fled to Bangladesh, it was attempting to survive. Uh, uh, like they managed to survive, and otherwise many died. And they they could be one of those who 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 died, and they they survived. Uh, meaning that these all people are have. Physical and mental destruction and unhealed scars in their physical and mental aspects of the life, and uh, and of course a million people in Bangladesh to be hosted by the Bangladeshi government and Bangladeshi people has been also very difficult because the yeah. resource uh, in the given area is very limited and Bangladesh uh, itself is a small country with uh, with uh, uh, with limited resource, and and, and we should always uh, appreciate Bangladeshi people and Bangladeshi. A government uh, to open their arms and hearts to 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 absorbs and 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 the uh, million people and, and 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 again i think the problem has started in myanmar and and the, the solutions need to be in myanmar and and the people need to be going with safe dignified uh way to the place of origin and and of course bangladesh uh it has been 5 years plus now that the people like the largest influx took place in 2017 uh and there were repatriation set time being made and and the when people fled from Myanmar, jump into the Nap River and Bay of Bengal in 2017 because the land was more dangerous than the sea. Situations remain very same or even worse than that now in, 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 in Myanmar to be going mm-hmm. back. So you are you escape from a grave that you have half buried uh, uh, to be ki- killed, and being pushed to go back to, to, to Myanmar is as if sent him back. To, to the to the grave that you escape from 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 dying. Uh, so the situation doesn't favor for a safe, dignified uh, voluntary return for the, for the Rohingya. That's Bangladeshi uh, uh authorities are trying to find different innovative modality, different ways how to how to create a uh, sustainable situation for the Rohingya, including relocations of the of the certain number of the of the uh, of the Rohingya populations because the 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 Camps are very congested, and the hygiene level in the camp are very low. And there are a lot of also the the uh, the crowd on like you know if a million people in a small scale uh, place like that are being uh, being uh, closed, uh, anything could happen anytime, uh, You know, so the 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 idea was to by the Bangladeshi government, which doesn't fall into uh, into the principle of international way of doing things and and relocating some of these refugees to an island uh, that has is an EU island no uh, human ha- being has been ever lived there and uh, the island has been technically uh, from various technical assessment has identified uh, it's not livable by human beings yet and because there are a lot of uh, like uh, cyclones and, and and floods and things like that and it's very far away from mainland of bangladesh and and it, uh, so there is risk uh from, uh from from various perspectives to be able but, the, but despite this Bangladeshi gov, uh, government has built sheltered this and relocated uh, uh, uh some number of, of rohingya and uh, uh some of them went by their own will uh, uh seeing that it might be a different and and some uh, are being maybe perhaps forced and and of course there are a certain number of like around close to uh, uh five to six thousand people in no man's land, when Bangladesh at the beginning uh, did not open its border to when Rohingya were fleeing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this no man's land were being occupied by the nearby villages because Bangladesh wouldn't open the gate for them and they were stuck in, in there. So they have happened to be uh, stuck there since yeah. uh, last five years. Uh, and the, 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 the remaining Rohingya lives in, in, in Cox's Bazar districts of uh, of uh, Bangladesh in, in different mm-hmm. parts. Uh, uh, of this, this district. So that's the situation.
4: Yeah, that's very well said. And if some people have, have taken on recently uh, leaving these camps in Bangladesh. Uh, they've taken on this very risky boat journey, right? Uh, I think they're going to places like Malaysia, if I'm not mistaken, Indonesia. Um, can you explain a little bit about like, how prevalent that is and of course how incredibly like, high risk it is for people to take that journey?
10: Sure. The, the situations in the camp is not much different than the life that they used to live in 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 Myanmar despite that the level of uh, level of uh, uh, human rights violations and the treatment that they are having may not be the same but uh, Bangladesh is not a signatory to 1952 refugee conventions and it's not legally obliged uh to be uh to be following all uh international norms and protocols to be uh to be Hosting the, the 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 refugees, but despite they have demonstrated the humanity uh, and demonstrated the moral obligations towards the humanity to to host the the Emilian people, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, then the Emilian people, some of them has been from 1978, and some of them are from 1992, some of them are from 2017, has a very dark future. They they are closed in this uh, fence camp, and the movements are restricted. Access to, not, uh, given, uh, like, uh, inter- access to informations are not given, like the access to information are like internet service and things like that has been denied. Access to livelihoods are denied and they are not able to legally work and solely rely on to, to the international humanitarian assistance. Access to education has been denied. So the, the young people who are growing in this camp does not see a future that they will be able to go back to Myanmar or if they live here as if you are living a debt uh, uh, like you know you don't have any 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 way forward seeing a bright future so there is uh, there is the only uh, they don't have a best alternative uh, to be trying to be exploring different paths. and the only path it happened to be is uh, being created in the past uh, uh, in the past by some rohingyas taking these boats and making to to malaysia uh, where they could do some domestic works and get a refugee status and maybe uh, able to work and and some you are lucky enough to be resettled in a third country. Uh, a small number, maybe less okay. than two, less than two three percent of the total total Rohingya in Malaysia. Okay. Malaysia. So the journey is very risky. The 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 boats that they are taking the the first the sea is very rough that they take, and they are the the, the infrastructure boat infrastructure that they are taking are not uh built uh, like they they not built in a way to be coping with this rough sea and rough uh, rough weathers and climate so many of these rohingya people who make this less than 50 percent of them make make it to the to the destinations uh, either they die on the sea or they are being arrested by different navies and and, and or they are uh they are being uh jailed uh by by myanmar uh, myanmar junta and in two thousand. Twenty-two alone, three thousand five hundred, more than three thousand five hundred people, including uh, children as young as two years old, are jailed to five years for trying to attempt uh, to to go to Malaysia. Jesus. Uh, uh, so this is uh, this is what is happening. So the, the the life is meaningless there. And, and of course, taking this journey means that you are tossing a coin whether you 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 get. Uh, tail, or you get uh, you get head, or you got tails. You know, and 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 uh, so it it's like batting your life. Whether you, if you make it, uh, your your life to somewhat level meaningfully. If you don't make it, your life and it is more or less the same that you will live in there. In there, uh, so that's why these are the push factors, and of course there are pull factors. Uh, reunifications. If a son has made uh, uh, three years ago, five years ago uh, to to Malaysia and working uh, in the constructions or or or, or, or gardening like levers and and uh, you have a remaining family in the camp and you don't want to see your family in that situation and you want to bring your family the kids or childrens or wife and you do that. And, and lastly, also they are growing youth in Malaysia who are who want to marry the Rohingya and maintain the culture and language and things like that. So they want to have brides bringing from the refugee camp and and right. uh, so there are different uh, uh, push fact, uh, pull factor as well from from Malaysia. But yep. the prim- primary factor is the push factor in, in, in Myanmar and in Bangladesh.
4: Right. Yeah. And it's perfectly reasonable for people to want sort of yeah, some future, some some chance to realize their own life and their goals. So can you explain? People will probably have seen, like I think we're recording this on Thursday, um, which is the I'm just gonna look at the date, the nineteenth. Uh and, and people will have seen the last couple of days, maybe videos of fires in no man's land. Um and they will probably have seen like some acronyms, which are a lot of acronyms when, when you're reading about Myanmar. it can be very confusing. So could you explain a little bit about who these two groups that we've seen, right? the ARSA and the RSO, who they are and what they, what they represent, and, and perhaps why these two groups, who are normally Rohingya, are fighting each other?:
10: So the, in the context of Myanmar politics, the ethnic people. Uh, has been fighting for decades and, and, and decades uh, with Myanmar military and Bama uh, supremacy, like for larger majority supremacy. Uh, uh, at the beginning, they were attempt during the time of independency through reconciliations and dialogue, meaning uh, like uh, without arms. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the language again uh, being uh, understood uh by the uh, by the Myanmar larger majority is the language that they speak as well so then ethnic people started to grab the arms and and resist control their territory to uh, to attempted to control their territory at, at, uh, in order to get the equal right and uh, decide for their own future be part of the decisions that collectively impact the nations and and to basically equal right justice and 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 those those things that's what ethnic peoples are are are, are uh, uh, fighting for and giving their lives and livelihoods. Uh, it's nothing less than that and nothing more than that. It's very simple. We want to live with yeah. dignity, freely, equally with anyone else. And and uh, so many ethnic revolutionary organizations forms uh, came came up in different part of Myanmar. Uh, representing different ethnic, and uh, Rohingya also used to be one of those back in 1950, uh, uh, 40, after 1948, dependent mm-hmm. and 1952, Rohingya is the first one to drop the gun in exchange of the peace with the government, mm-hmm. saying that we are peace-loving people, and as long as you give us what 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 our identity, and and, and we're able to, and we are, so then there's a certain period of time that the Rohingya people did not have an armed opposition uh, group, uh, because I am someone who uh, believe in non-violent movement, but in a context like Myanmar, uh, again, non movement yes. wouldn't go anywhere. If it's worked seventy years, uh, uh, Myanmar wouldn't have longest civil war in the world. Uh, yes, yeah. more than seventy years, right? So we need to be uh, practical and and seeing the reality uh, like that. So then, uh, then uh, nineteen seventy eight, again, these things uh, happened and then uh, and the Rohingya thinks, okay, then what we have been promised. Uh, and uh, what we have we are we are being uh, told to be uh, promised to be given is not given. So we have to uh, grab the gun again and and form uh, uh, do as uh, others are doing in order to to uh... so the Rohingya Solidarity Organization has been formed and and it has been one of the popular organizations getting a mm-hmm. lot of popularity from the Rohingya community. Uh, and then there were issues within the institution that has been growing. Of course, uh, 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 they were not able to maintain. Uh, the the institutional growth and institutional resource management and then the the institution collapse and, and as well as it has to do something with the like you don't have a territory like other uh, other other uh, armed oppositions group will will be in Myanmar, stations in Myanmar, where Rohingya where stations in Bangladesh and Bangladesh government were not really supporting enough for them to survive uh, with 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 a, uh, to enhance its military capability and and of course uh, there are several other 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 things and and uh, mm-hmm. so then it's disappeared in between and then in and 2014 uh, this guy a guy called uh, um, uh, this the guy who is leading currently the 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 Salvation army uh, who was born in uh, in Pakistan and grew up in Saudi Arabia uh, yeah. uh, uh, his parent, uh, he claimed his parent is Rohingya. And of course, uh, he speaks the Rohingya language. That mean it's indicate that he uh, he is yeah. and came to to our Rakhine state to mobilize people, saying that you need to grab the gun. And this yeah. is what then uh, people, of course, uh, who have critical thinking skills and did not believe into things because it's need to be from and within. And someone who does not understand how Myanmar politics look like. Uh, cannot lead a, a revolutions because revolutionary has to do a lot with the with with the politics uh, political landscape as well in the country and and uh, but however there are a certain number of people who believe in it and follow very small number and uh, and Rohingya didn't want to again fight or or enter into violence and they just want to live peacefully and and uh, that uh, 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 and and they are resilient uh, to to the to to what they are trying to. Uh, uh, gain uh, uh, e- equally as others, and and uh, so then the uh, our conservation army, um, uh, ARSA, has attacked the post uh, thirty different police posts in two thousand seventeen. That's where the, the collective punishment has been given as a result to the Rohingya yeah. the Rohingya community. And it's not collective uh, collective action; it was individuals' action. A certain hundred of people uh, gathered together and attend police force and 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 the whole Rohingya population has been punished. So then, uh, followed by that as well, RSO has been pre strategizing themselves, and then so our, our, our Rohingya solidarity organizations also pop up parallelly back in 2018, 2019, and and uh, and of course the the ideology that they stand uh, are slightly different from one another, and uh, so the 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 uh, that's why the the clash happened, and and. Uh, 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 Rohingya solitary organization think that uh, like the, the way that ARSA has been conducting and they're responsible they, they, uh, for what happened to the Rohingya people as, a, as collectively uh, genocide and things, uh, things like that, creating opportunities for Burmese military to to wipe out the Rohingya and deport the Rohingya. And uh, so there they were this political disagreement between these two groups. And this no man land has been mostly occupied uh, uh, within the Rohingya refugees there. Uh, some RSA members are often uh, try to to enter there and ha- and, and stations there. And uh, so recently uh, the uh, what we have learned from the ground is that uh, RSO Rohingya solidarity organizations uh, uh, wrote out uh, and operations to remove them from there and uh, so that the Rohingya in the normal lands could live peacefully without crimes and things like that. and and uh, uh, that's how the fight has started and and uh, it's escalated. And uh, there were uh, 200 houses being burned down, uh, shelters, uh, refugee shelters. Around 2,500 to 3,000 uh, people has been, uh, uh, has to be displaced. Uh, they were not allowed to enter to Bangladesh because uh, no man land is not accessible by neither parties and, and it's it's just in between. So uh, some of them has destroyed the fence tour to Burma and entered to there because they are just from the nearby villages. They could see their villages for five years, but they could not go back. So they, right. uh, so they, uh, uh, so they, they went back there. Uh, but now Myanmar military is pushing them out uh, from from there back to the no man's land.
4: Yeah, it's just a, yeah terrible situation. Um, and the both these aren't the only armed groups in that state. Right, there are other armed groups. But like this, this sort of explains it more succinctly. Like if we get into the other armed groups, it gets even more complicated. Um, so I wonder what people listening obviously will, um, they've, they've heard a lot about, about the, the conflict in Burma, about the various different groups that are being persecuted by the Burmese military. How can they help specifically with, with this issue? Is, is there ways that people can, can help out?
10: I think we have seen how the world came together to help Ukraine people unjustly, uh, illegally. Uh, uh, to be attacked by by Russia yeah. and uh, and threatening the democratic society of the world, and and that has been very inspiring. appreciated, and 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 we stand with the Ukrainian people, and people in Burma has the the, the life of the uh, the value of the life of the people in Burma has also the there is no difference in lives. You can buy one, if, you know. So we have been uh, the people in Myanmar has been fighting for for. Uh, uh, at the cost of life and livelihoods today uh with whatever means that they have to make this country back to the path of democracy and and uh, so International Community should do uh beyond releasing the statement uh or or, or of concern okay. and a statement of concern maybe maybe uh may, may name and shame and may put political pressure and political pressure uh is not this the 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 the, the thing thats being cared by by the by the by the junta. so they, yeah. they 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 the the total enemy of the overall people including Rohingya people are the military and, and, and they are the one who has destroyed this country and they are the one who is destroying and they are responsible primarily responsible um you know, people uh, institutions who wiped out the Rohingya and who carried out the genocide so I think the international community should uh do beyond uh beyond uh sanctions uh embargo and uh, and and respective citizens uh uh, of the country should claim to their respective government to do more for Burmese people uh, and the Rohingya people to demonstrate the moral obligations to, to the humanity. And in 21st century, genocide took place while the world was watching. And we sat in the United Nations back in 19, uh, 1950, uh, 48, uh, that's never again. and and. It's very shameful uh, that it could that, that genocide could take place in the eyes of eight billion people in twenty first century in modern age, and the world failed uh, to protect the Rohingya, uh, despite there has been compelling stories, images, and satellitearies, and 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 still it's continued to be so, and followed by that crimes against humanity, war crimes has been being committed continually by the by the same military that committed genocide. Yeah. and I, th- I i think the international community will have at some point to answer to themselves on their beliefs of the humanity
4: yeah like i think the international community let this happen for too long and they ignored it for too long and, and then now it, this always happens right like it's like foucault's boomerang you know, the, the the violence spreads and gets used in the metropole and, and yeah, it's deeply upsetting what does that support look like from the international community like does that mean uh man pads for pdfs does it mean recognizing the national unity government like what concrete things should the community be doing
10: the international community should recognize uh, there are again uh, the uh, there are some uh, issues that need to be fixed within the 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 national unity government particularly the inclusions of the rohingya and other uh like elect- its its positions toward uh, to the religious other religious and ethnic minorities particularly yes. those are small and that need to be fixed and international community should do it in an incentivized way that okay you do this and we will do this for you and okay. and yep. and the recognitions come uh, with incentive of supporting uh, uh, supporting uh, the, the because it's only legitimate uh, uh, whether we like the national unity government or not we don't have the best alternative. Uh, to yeah. it, it's democratically elected, and uh, and there is a lot of issues within the uh, within the within the uh, within uh, the the national unity government, particularly when it's come to the Rohingya issues. So mm-hmm. these need to be dealt in, in national unity government. I have been consistently advising them to fix this, We're acting beyond policy and 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 showing like state level prioritized agenda uh, with concrete milestone to uh, to uh, to the, the change to, uh, to the Rohingya. Uh, and of course parallel to that international community should ensure that big supports are being given being recognized and 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 in order to win these revolutions which has shaken this t- very institution that has consumed the, the the resource of the country in various means and ways uh, some uh, and one of the strongest institutions has been shaken by the young people uh, with small means, uh, yeah, very small means that they have very small and time to time, very innovative uh, and and, mm-hmm. and 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 utilizing whatever means that they had. An international community should provide support to PDF uh, to be uh, first and foremost institutionalizing and 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 capacity building, enhancing, acting upon international standard way of uh, uh, way of operating as as a as a military group. And and, and of course, uh, when you are be established as an as a military. Uh, uh, Institutions uh, and, and it's it's, le- it's being formed by the by the legal government of Myanmar and to support yeah. this this uh, this military and many many nations are getting military assistance package. Yeah, and and I think international community should have no problem to provide military assistance package to, of course, in, in a very principles and value based uh, with with a value based approach and 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 uh, and and that's include the technical support to to uh, to set up the mechanisms. Uh, to hold accountable and to ensure the transparency and accountability across this spectrum.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think that that's very well said. And they do tend like if people aren't familiar with the way the PDFs have been organised, like they, they have been very respectful of, of like norms and laws of war and things like that, which obviously the, the Burmese military have not. Um, and, and it,
10: I, I think, an in institutions that's a group that has been with hundred hundred thousand of people, young people with no. Prior military experience, yes. and mostly operating in a very limited uh, to no resource context, and being able to respect the human rights and and human dignity should be recognized. You know, there, yes. when when you you have a gun, and uh, you, there there are things that happen and need to be justified and 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 being held accountable for. But I'm saying that. I'm not saying that it should be a lot, and any 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 kind of misconduct within the military systems need to be investigated properly and take actions upon and held accountable those who gave these, who carried out these actions, and who gave comment to carry out this action. But the number of cases related to the uh, to the to the uh, to the to the P- PDF has been significantly low. Uh, say, uh, and uh, when when it's come to the to the human rights violations, and and uh, it has to be zero, and uh, even yes. one is too much. Uh, but i'm yes. saying compared to uh, to uh, and and uh, and i think continued support need to be given there in order yeah. to 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 enhance their capacity to f- defeat the hunter plus to defeat it in a principle and value based app- in, with a principle yeah. and value based approach
4: yeah yeah certainly they could definitely do it like the people we've spoken to are terribly equipped by any modern standards incredibly brave and innovative but, um, they could certainly do a lot better if they had a lot more Okay, where can people, if people want to follow along with your work, which is very impressive, how can they find you? Do you have like, a, do you want to share your Twitter account or a website maybe? Where can people keep up with you?
10: So I, I'm on Twitter and Facebook mostly and my Twitter is akmo2 uh, and which uh, you can see it's uh, with my pictures and and uh, I have put my bio as well there. And Mm I am also very active on the Facebook and and what uh, the work related most of the work that I do uh, uh, are being uh, not everything but some part that international community need to know are being portrayed there and particularly uh, uh, the 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 human rights situations uh, related to the Rohingya and Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh are being uh, being uh, being shared there in a timely very timely manner sometimes even lives you know it's happening now and being and uh uh,
4: yeah yeah you've been very good at that i follow your twitter account and it's very informative and it helps me stay informed so that's it's akmoe2 if people are uh searching for it thank you so much for giving us some of your evening i really really appreciate your time is there anything else you want to get to before we finish up
10: No, it's lovely to be part of the program and thank you so much for having me once again
4: thank you very much
5: Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
2: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com,
0: or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at slash sources. Thanks for listening.
2: Right Rug Flooring.